Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Hello, where you at, man? We're looking for you. Where's the uh, co-host? It's only like the 200th episode of the show, the dang podcast. Where the hell are you? It's Saturday night, brother. Saturday night, brother. No, it doesn't start at eight o'clock. I told you last night at five. <laughs> Welcome to the 200th episode. We made it. We did. They did. We made it. We have a studio audience of two people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, technically three. We'd like to thank our fans. (laughs) Both of you. (laughs) And how's it going, Rob? Oh, man, it's great. We've been setting up all day for this. Yep, yep. Cleaning, Stre- stressing out, stressing, and, uh, dealing with plumbing issues. You oh yeah. Usual. What you don't? <laughs> you cleaned? Yeah, we cleaned yeah. for you, man. <laughs> <laughs> you should have seen it yesterday. <laughs> we know, and uh, guess what? Yes, Luke isn't here. Oh well, imagine that. Uh, I know. It's only the two hundredth episode. It's not, it's all not that, a deal. You know? Yeah. You know what I mean? Jeez. We actually have a studio guests. Plural. I know. And we're waiting on a third. 
But right next to me is Joshua Cutchin. Hi. <laughs> Hi, guys. And ladies. Yeah, and lady. Lady. <laughs> yeah. All the lady in the house say yeah. I feel real. I feel like really like I'm in a corner right now. Yeah, I didn't mean to box you in. You know, I kinda, I'm just. I have I have one of those bodies that just tends to box people. In, I guess. <laughs> so how you been, man? How's how was the trip? How was the trip up here to good old Nashville? Good. It, it beat driving up 85, which is what I do most of the time. Um, but it was nice. I, I I'm surprised that I didn't have to stop halfway through and wipe down my back windshield because I had my brains exploded out the back of my head by my uh, by my co-pilot. Um, some of our conversations, some really interesting, cool, heady stuff. It was it was a lot better than drive, making the drive on my own, that's for sure. So, who was your and, co-pilot? Yeah, Randall Carlson is my co-pilot. Otherwise known as God, right? <laughs> <laughs> and aspiring God, as we all are. <laughs> sure. Right? Yes. I hope we all. I hope I'm not alone in this. <laughs> aspiring to the Godhead, right? Okay. Randall, very cool to have you with us in the studio. It's a, it's a real privilege, oh, thanks, man. Adam. Yeah, I'm ha- it's feels good to be here except I don't know, I'm kind of nervous about this couch. It's kind of like feeling like might be something from Nightmare on the Elm Street and it's going to swallow me. Yeah, it's got second. a few it's got a few blood stains like I'm going to just it. disappear <laughs> in a moment. You're just going to see my feet sticking out and <laughs> That's Luke's, yeah. that's Luke's bed, I think. The, the, oh, yeah. the, the, that, that one's Luke's bed. Oh. Yeah, that's oh, Luke's nice. bed. Yeah. The, the uh, yeah, this is the this is the one that uh, Rob likes to pass out on at yeah, the end of the night. You will see him here later on at about eleven to eleven thirty to twelve o'clock in the evening. I mean, it's it's comfortable but not conducive to aware podcasting. Like I find my posture getting worse and worse. <laughs> <laughs> I'm either turning into a pokeball or like a fetus, one or the other, just sl- slightly crouching, crouching, crouching. And we have someone else over here. We got another guest coming that's on the way. But what, well, Joe? Why don't you uh, pull your bike over to Hello, you so everybody. people can actually hear you? Hi, Joe. Hello. Joe was like one of our first guests on Conspiracy Normal back on episode three, and he's been with us for a while. He's gone on a couple of road trips. Went to Minneapolis, where we actually met Randall at the Paradise Symposium. Yeah, everybody listen to Randall. He's not joking. Very true. And, Joe, you've got another contraption over here. Yeah, I set up the voice, um, the Ghost Pro stuff, but uh, we just lost power, so I'm not going to worry about it. Just lost power? Yeah, it was strange. Well, it's a ghost, man. Well, it lasted an hour, and it was listening to you guys, but that's about it. Did it say anything cool before it died? It was just talking about horses. Huh. <laughs> horses? Yeah. Rob's got a story about that. <laughs> well, Do you have a story about horses? I had a strange conversation with our friend Jeff Heim about horses this week. Did which, you really? Yeah, when he shows up, you can ask him about it. Is he going to show up? Uh, I heard a rumor he was. Oh, I thought he had construction workers. I thought, yeah. he, I thought Jeff's too good for he us. He had to run to Home though. Depot or something. You know how it is. He, yeah, he always has to run to Home Depot. Yeah. You're right. Let's still run to Home Depot. Home well, Depot and Chick-fil-A call. He just that call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And over here at Hermitage, Home Depot is right next to Chick-fil-A. Yeah. So. And Will Serfiel, you might as well introduce yourself Hello. to... Hello, people. My name is Serfiel Stevenson. I'm a... 
avid supporter of Conspiracy Normal podcast, and they've been so gracious as to invite me to uh, partake in this tonight. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to have a question and answer session for the guests afterwards. And you've got some, you have some questions that you came up with. Yeah, absolutely. I've been uh, reading and, and listening to podcasts of both of their work and uh, Dr. Future as well uh, for the past few days, trying to come up with some, some good questions. Nice. nice. Sweet. And we have the, we have the audience here, which now is two people. <laughs> And we do have a mic over there <laughs> that if people want to ask, ask questions, you can ask these distinguished guests over here. No hardball questions, though. Just <laughs> <laughs> like, what was the last thing you ate? No math questions. <laughs> In the math questions. What's your favorite color? <laughs> Josh. Who's your, who's your favorite boy band? <laughs> Bachelor number one. If you were a cryptid, what would you be? <laughs> I'll be the moth man, because I've got big, red, glowing eyes for you. Now, Adam, you assured me that the tone of this thing was going to be serious. <laughs> well, so just I will remind you from time to time. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll try to get a little more glum for you, Randall. I, that's I, think, okay. I think Randall and I got all our good ideas out in the car, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the podcast actually started earlier. It, 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 it's already peaked. All right, Josh, we'll start with you, sir. Okay. I've not had the chance to talk to you on the podcast about your trip to Ireland. First of all, why'd you make the trip? And what were you hoping to find out there that deal with your subject area? Um, it was a real bucket list um, item for me. Um, so I had the opportunity to come into a little bit of a, a uh, financial windfall that sort of allowed me to take that step. Um Perspective, I guess, is really what I was sort of looking for. Um, you know, I've, I've had a long-standing interest in, you know, the fairy faith as it is, fairy folklore. Um, but it's one thing to read about these things, and it's another thing to actually be to go to some of these places and see some of these structures um, and really put in perspective as to what people were really talking about, um, which, you know, <clears throat> for the most part, are early Christian in some cases, you know, of some stone circles and some stone tombs, Neolithic structures that have become associated with, you know, these, this sort of idea of the little people. But it really did help um, to reframe a lot of the ways that I think about that particular subject that's really so interesting to me. Um, it underscored in a lot of ways something that I was aware of, but I'd taken for granted, you know, specifically the relationship between uh, fairies and the dead. Um, I'm also a fan of pub culture. And uh, so I was like, you know, I had this idea that I was going to find every pub that we can just crawl up <laughs> like a cat by the fire. And uh, as I've said, as I've told other people, you know, what fascinated me was that uh, it was actually kind of interesting because it kind of demystified that. Like, I, I still pine for Ireland, but I don't necessarily pine for Irish pub culture because just like America, there are a ton of crappy bars. <laughs> And so every pub is not like this wood-lined, you know, gentleman's lounge with the fireplace and, you know, the, well, they got some fairy boots on the mantle. You know, it's not like that. It's like, no, this is a Throwing bar. Darts. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Throwing darts, you know, um, uh, and the, the, the taps, all they have are like, you know, the Guinness impressions and then Coors and Bud Light. And like, Wow. This is so, like, this is the least sexy thing I can imagine. So, you know, I, I spent my time, in, my, my, my share of uh, time in some really nice pubs over there. But it was nice to, you know, sort of be like, oh, it's is, you know, I don't have to be sad that I don't live over here. Although, I tell you what, it's, it's it was astoundingly um, 
achingly beautiful. And uh, what part of Ireland were you in? Um, so we sort of did the the real whirlwind tour. We went from Dublin, um, and then from Dublin all the way up to Belfast on the first day. Then Belfast, Northern Ireland, uh, Northern Ireland, so country Antrim, <clears throat> all the way back down the coast. <clears throat> okay. Excuse me to Galway. Um, then did Galway in the burn, and then um, came down to Dingle, which is the westernmost point of Europe. Um, did the Dingle Peninsula and then came back through uh, Limerick where we stopped at Loch Gur, which is really one of the most sacred sites in Ireland, continuously ha- inhabited for uh, 8,000 years. Um, it's really sort of an Irish cultural heritage center that not a lot of people talk about. And it's, you know, it's lousy with fairy lore. Um, actually, one of the spots where in, I believe it's Knock Fennel, it's either Knock Fennel or Knock Nadoon, but I believe it's Knock Fennel, um, it's supposed to have an entrance to Tiernanog to fairyland. Um, and supposedly every seven years, there's a, a you know a city at the bottom, a fairy city at the bottom of the lock that rises up. Um, so spent a, just a day there, which was a nice change of pace, and then our final day back in Dublin. So we missed the entire bottom half, that sort of Cork area, okay. um, which I need to go back and, and catch next time. In addition to you know spending some time in Scotland, so that's that's the next goal. But um, <clears throat> I can d- definitely die a happier man now after doing that. Did so the you per- hit Newgrange? Yeah, we 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 hit uh, we did a. Um, Nowth. Mm. So Newgrange and Nowth. The Newgrange uh, tickets were all sold out until like 4 p.m. or something. And we had a bunch of other stuff that we wanted to do that day. So, but we hit Nowth, um, which is, you know, sort of uh, remarkable in and of itself. I believe it's like a full third. I've said this statistic before and it's escaping me, but, but I believe it's a full third of, um, of uh, the Neolithic artwork in Europe is found mm. at that particular mm. site. Um, and of course, you know, it's stuff like spirals, triangles, lines in the sky, circles, like it's just, it's, it's basically a bunch of UFO imagery slash, you know, altered state imagery that you find on these rocks. And that makes it very apparent to me that it's, you know, it's, it's very similar. Um, at, at Locker, actually we went to, um, the Grange circle, which is not new Grange, but the Grange circle, which is down there at, uh, at Locker, <clears throat> which is the largest stone circle in Ireland. And uh, had a had a wonderful uh, tour guide from the Locker Heritage Center, uh, Michael Quinlan, talk to us and just spend some time with us. And I knew I was with the right guy when he goes, "Have you ever heard of ley lines?" And I'm like, "Boy, howdy, buddy! <laughs> have you ever have I ever heard of ley lines?" And, you know, we sort of talked about you know the uh, the sort of UFO altered state thing with with uh, you know an Irish. Um, Archaeologist, which was sort of an interesting thing, interesting conversation that I don't think you'd find with a lot of stateside archaeologists. Um, and he himself had apparently experienced some interesting things. There was a uh, uh, a hill that he pointed to in the distance and claimed that as a child he had gone into and found a secret passageway with a secret church that if you knocked on a certain part of the wall or you looked at, a, at the wall a certain way, you could find this secret passageway to this to this little chapel inside this hill. And of course, I'm standing there going, well, what are you waiting for, dude? Let's go. (laughs) He's 80 and it's like, you know, half a mile away and it's rainy. So it's like, ah, okay, I'll get it. We we won't go. Maybe next time. But, uh, but it was, it was, um, I will never forget a lot of that experience. So you, you also went to see all these mounds. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So what's some of the lore behind these mounds? What, what makes these places so special? Well, um, you know, after going there, so supposedly fairy wraths, fairy leos, fairy forts, fairy mountains, there are different structures that are associated with the fairy folk throughout Ireland. Um, 
Uh, some of them are actual stacked stone forts. Some of them appear as hillocks. Some of them appear as rings of rocks with some trees in the center. Some of them actually appear as ring forts, is what they're also called, which is a mound of earth with a trench and, a, and a, an actual hillock in the middle. So you see, you learn to sort of catch these sort of different variations on it. Um, they are unambiguously human structures. They're unambiguously, usually the date that people put around them is, um, is usually the people cite that they're part of their you know sort of early christian era um but there but they are, could be older like neolithic age yeah i mean so there's there's sort of some blending between or even older structures and these other in the in these these sort of um these other structures that i'm referring to um a lot of them were used for um a lot of them were used by later settlers for housing their livestock and whatnot but they're they became associated with the fairy faith um they were bad places to go at night. Um, if you were to enter, you might come out, you know, fairy struck, which means, you know, sick or in a daze, or you might never come back at all because you're dead or been taken by the fairies. Um, they're unambiguously human though. Um, which is something that, uh, you know, I, they're, un they're unambiguously human. So they weren't necessarily built by the fairies, but if you begin to really understand the Celtic fairy death land of the dead, cosmology it begins to make more sense where this connection comes in so the real question that emerges from that <clears throat> is that um are these places of power because there is an ancient site there or were these ancient sites built on places of power sort of a chicken and the egg thing mm -hmm. um supposedly that I've, I've heard anywhere from i believe like 30 to sixty thousand. I might be getting some of my numbers wrong, so forgive me. Um, but I believe thirty to 60,000. I know that 60,000 is an estimate that I've heard for how many of these sort of fairy uh, structures are on Ireland, which is about the size of Indiana. So you can imagine how dense sort of this, this, uh, the, you, this, the, the, uh, how, how, how densely they are, they're, they're scattered about the landscape. The unfortunate thing is that most of the time when you're traveling through the landscape, you know, you're in a low car with hedges on either side, so it makes it difficult to see. And then, you know, on top of that, not all of them are super obvious. But, um, I think I visited about six different ferry sites and from the car saw about three others that were pretty unambiguously exactly what I was, what I was looking for. Um, and that was just with me, like, sort of, you know, getting, Get, getting an eye for it and sort of over the course of you know 10 days knowing what to look for are these pretty are these places pretty accessible or do you are they on private land public like what's the what's the <laughs> well, mixture there it's a mixture um, you know where i'm going with this so it's a mixture how many um, fences did you have to climb over there, there might have been some light <laughs> trespassing <laughs> over an electric fence <laughs> do you have any uh, any uh angry irishman trying to sh trying to shoot you or anything no it was the weirdest thing so i so i was aware of this one fairy fort that was supposed to be in this area of the of the burn and uh and we had looked for it and looked for it and we couldn't find it. And there was this like one lane dirt road leading off. And I'm like, let's just go down there and see what's down there. And on the way down there, we, you know, we come across this Irishman walking down the road because there, there's a that, well, I've never seen a, a populace so um, comfortable with walking through the countryside just on, on a road as, 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 as I did in Ireland. Yeah. He stops and we chat for a while and we talk about a fairy fort and he's like, oh yeah, he talks about like, you know, some sort of really like, you know, um, some, a, a, a fairy fort, you know, on down the coast that's all touristified up. And I'm like, okay. So he was coming towards us as we were driving down. I said, well, we'll turn down here, come down here and turn around. And we come to finally where we get, we get to a place to turn around and it's farmland and sitting right there is a giant, obvious fairy fort. 
And he catches up with us. I'm sorry, so I had that opposite. We were both going the same direction. He catches up with us, and I said, um, that's, that's a fairy fort. And he looks and he goes, Oh, I suppose so. <laughs> so I think, <laughs> I think that it's just, it's, it's, it's a part of the landscape that's, that's so common to see that they don't really, you know, and of course they're, they don't really, you know, not, not saying that they don't appreciate it, but it's not, um, it's not noteworthy, you know, to the average, uh, to the average Irish person who isn't interested in this sort of thing. Um, and it was on private land, so we waited for him to walk away and we drove and I watched my rear view mirror and we backed up <laughs> and I climbed over the fence, which I found out was electric. The good news is that a to good your chagrin. Of, <laughs> to my chagrin. The good news is that a pair of blue jeans will actually mitigate the you know the the, the mild voltage. Mm, that that's good have. to know. Uh, Thank uh, you. Your hands, if your hands grasp around it though, it's a different story. <laughs> um, and you know, so I'm dodging cow patties and I got in the middle. I basically you know I basically trespassed on private land, uh, but I you know I went out there. I you know said my respects, left a loaf of bread that I'd stolen from the bed and breakfast. Not stolen, I'd taken from the bread and breakfast. A little tiny loaf of, loaf of breakfast bread. <laughs> right? my, my criminal career in Ireland. Um, and then, uh, you know, then came back. So, you know, no harm, no foul. Um, and it was, you know, I don't know if I'm ever going to get back there. So I would, you know, if anybody... I would have loved to see the headline, Ferry Researcher Arrested in <laughs> Ireland for Trespassing. Yeah, exactly. With, like, Josh's mugshot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. Hold, holding his tuba. Oh no, man! You can't fly with the tuba. It's too 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 much of a pain in the pain in the butt. We actually have the tuba here. Yeah, it's, we're actually it's, staring at it you know, right it, now. It's staring at us, one way or the other. Um, All right, Doctor Future has just has just come. He's he's here. He's entered the bill. <laughs> <laughs> we'll so, to get him. Uh, able to get any photographs? Oh yeah, oh, plenty. I'd, yeah, no, I'd like I, to see those sometime. Um, so, yeah, some photographs and some, and some videos too. Oh good. Um, okay. Uh, you know, because I mean, it was you know, not only is it interesting to go for like the fortean lore seeking, but you know, like you're you're there amongst some some structures that are of, of an age that you just don't really run into that often in America. Mm -hmm. um, a lot, lots of lots of stone cairns um, that were just amazing to see, and so I'll, I'll definitely make sure to share. There's a there's a where do the road go Patreon video that I compiled of about 20 minutes of me going to these different forts, oh and nice sites and talking about that. So I'll be sure mm. to share that with you. Nice, but Soraya liked that. Yeah, it was it was it was a lot of fun, and you know, not only for you know patrons, but just for for me as a memento. So I think I took like fourteen hundred photos in ten days or something. Um, okay, well, Irish trip aside, you also have a new book that is coming out here pretty soon. Yes, um, and I am super excited about this book. I am too. Uh, you know, it's different. The last two books were on food and drink encounters in fourteen. You know. Uh, in Fort in Fortiana, and then the other explain was, maybe explain what Fortiana is for the the audience maybe if they don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, um, yeah. So Fortiana is an easier way of saying weird stuff or anomalous things. You know, you can't just say named UFOs after Charles Fort. Named after Charles Fort, um, historian and researcher that sort of uh, wrote a lot of the uh, foundational. Uh, texts that have examined these sort of things. But Fortiana is a bigger catch-all that isn't just like, I'm a cryptozoologist, I'm a ufologist, I'm into, you know, stories of time travel, I'm into, you know, um, 
ancient mysteries. I'm into, you know, anomalous falls of things from the sky. All these sort of fall under the umbrella of Fortiana. So it's easier to say Fortiana or Fortian things, uh, Fortian studies, than to say, you know, anomalistics or weird things. It's a little bit more elegant than that. So, uh, uh, so yeah, thank you for asking me to clarify that. I always sometimes yes, forget that yes, I'm not yes. in that world. The audience is giving me a thumbs up. My, my jacket. We actually, the audience is, the audience has grown to three now. So <laughs> it's swollen to three. Um, yep. <laughs> but uh, so the first book was on the role of food and drink in some of these stories. Second book was on the consistency of odors um, in these in, in, in these stories, these sort of 14 stories. And this one I decided not very pleasant odors either. No, I mean, not 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 solely sulfur, because there's a lot of other, you know, uh, there's a lot of other consistencies that you can find, but a lot of sulfurous smells. Um, hey, can I mention a, oh, a sure. popular incident where sulfur was smelled? Mm hmm. I think I remember when Ahmadinejad spoke at the United Nations right after uh, George W. Bush. He also said he detected sulfur in the air in front of the podium when he spoke. Is that I, right? I've heard that like people like Hillary Clinton uh, and, and, and Bill Clinton, they, they, and Obama, they, they leave a, a sulfur smell in their, in their white coat. Yeah. Obama attracts flies. Smells like smells like the devil. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I, I I I did hear that too. Wait, was it Ahmadinejad or was it um was it uh Shop was it uh Hugo Chavez? I think it was Ahmadinejad okay. that time. Okay. No, we well, have I mean, four. I, we I, have I an audience of four now. Um, but uh, yeah, so and of course you know something from the book the the smell of sulfur is sulfur actually has no odor. It's like sulfur compounds that have odor. So anyway, that's 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 the rabbit hole that I went down with that. Anyway. Third book, so all these other books were sort of survey and analysis of these things. This third book is on um, uh, paranormal child abduction um, from fairy f from the fairy fate through ufology, but also touching on subjects of Bigfoot and even sort of the missing 411 thing. But looking at changelings and the hybrid program, because, you know, I, as someone who's interested in ufology, I, I, who doesn't think that the hybrid program quote unquote is something that should be taken at face value i had to say to myself well what do you think of this you know if if, if this doesn't fit with your co cosmology you need to actually um you actually need to wrestle with what you think this is so i forced myself to do that and it's a, it's a very different book tentatively titled thieves of the night <clears throat> um probably going to have a sam sheeran cover which i'm excited about because i love his work um, nice and uh, coming out no later, I've been assured, than late summer uh, 2018. Um, so that's that's coming out soon. And it's if, if nothing else, it will be the most comprehensive fairy abduction collection since at least like some stuff that's come out in the 1940s. Well, hey, I, you know, we're going to do an interview about this about this book for sure. But let's get like a teaser, like some of the one, a couple of the stories from the book that you find particularly interesting. Oh, to put man. you on the absolute yeah, to spot. Put me on the spot without my without my document here. Um, <clears throat> there was uh, there's an interesting story uh, t told by a uh, an Irish uh, storyteller by the name of uh, I believe it was in I believe it was in Rise was the name um, of a young boy named Gitto Bach. B-A-C-H, in Ireland, who was uh, fond of playing with the fairies, and he would always return with, as evidence, these little scraps of odd white paper. Um, and he would always tell people that he was playing with the fairies, and no one really believed him until he didn't show up. 
and uh they you know there was this giant search for him no one showed up and then finally <clears throat> um he they, they no one could find him rather and then finally a year later to the day he showed back up on the doorstep in the exact clothes that he was wearing supposedly hmm. um you know you'll find that's that's sort of one of the more uh, apocryphal stories because there is a uh you know at the intersection of mythology and you know tall tales and actual accounts is where a lot of these things sort of sit adam's done oh seriously you okay dude yeah, I need a cough button. <laughs> Holy! I was thinking that earlier. Like, cough button. could you use the Heimlich over there? I'm good. I'll just right. smack his just, chest. We'll bend you over. Of course, um, I would. Uh, of course, I would like start getting a cold on the 200th episode. That's you need a shot works. of uh, Hellboy Hellwater. Yeah, I might need that. <laughs> yeah, 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 sure. Um, but uh, another one of my favorites. There, are, there's so many favorites that I found. Um, there, another one of my favorites, sort of um, from the alien angle, is this young girl. Um, who was out berry picking in France during World War One or two rather? Um, and of course, you know anybody who's familiar with the missing four one one things uh, knows that there's a correlation between missing people and berries, and a very prominent uh, um, history of people who uh, are taken by the fairies when going berry picking. But in this case, this girl was berry picking in uh, Nazi occupied France, mm. and she saw what was a uh, a shape about the size of an automobile with several uh, short figures in brown jumpsuits um, standing there. Now, while they didn't necessarily explicitly take her away, there was a moment where she felt like everything around her froze and she had some missing time. Um, so it's interesting because, you know, if, if you take away the uh, the object that looked like a, a craft the size of an automobile, it sounds a lot like a fairy story, too. So lots of little correlations like that here and there and it goes over you know not only the anecdotal stories but means of protecting children from this means of retrieving children from this um and also worldwide traditions because the consist there's a consistency throughout traditions in literally on literally every inhabited continent um that echo this uh this this the fairy lore that you'll see in the celtic the celtic uh countries for the audience that uh, they may not know some of this material um, it's kind of the nexus between fairy lore, alien abduction phenomenon, and even Bigfoot encounters. Yeah, some I've, of that connection that's there with that stuff. Yeah, I've I've um I've come to I've I personally have come to sort of accept the idea of of like fairy lore as just an old fashioned way of saying the paranormal because it encompasses so much. Um, you know, if you look at the the modern alien abduction phenomena, setting aside lights in the sky, which might be something extraterrestrial legitimately, which might be unexplained natural <coughs> phenomena, and which most likely more than more often than not are unorthodox terrestrial craft tests, setting that aside, the abduction experience really mirrors a lot of the things that you see in fairy lore. Um, the height of the beings, the places where people are taken sometimes... Um, uh, to round areas, sometimes areas underground. Um, often in these experiences, there's these multiple short beings supervised by a taller being. Um, in you know, the modern abduction accounts, it's the supervisor gray with the shorter gray aliens. In, in fairy accounts, it was the shorter fairies with the taller, more human-like fairy queen. Um, you'll find the prominence of food in these sort of stories, um, anomalous light phenomena in these short of sto sort of stories, um, both in both sets of entities could supposedly paralyze people. You find a lot of those similarities, but, um, and that's been talked about, you know, ad nauseum by people like, you know, Jacques Vallée, 
um, and others. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the passport to Begonia stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And although that wasn't really <laughs> first to really discuss a lot of these things, it definitely he definitely um, managed to bring a lot of that together. Um, Luke. <laughs> Nice. I'm so glad that's speaking where I've been of, all this time looking for Luke. Speaking of mythical creatures. <laughs> yeah, speaking yeah. of mythical creatures, here he is. Where's my Chick-fil-A, man? Uh, I destroyed it. All the people that are listening to this uh, is here, Luke, saying, I, I destroyed it. <laughs> <laughs> I, guess, I guess some funny looks because of my... Nobody can hear you, dude. <laughs> I got some weird looks because of my uh, yeah, personal shroud of turn shirt, isn't it? No, it's actually dehumanized. Oh, yeah. I should have known. It's got a nice little message on the back too. <laughs> Jesus was first. All right. Well, um, <laughs> it's, it's, you you make me look bad with my shriek of the mutilated shirt that I got on. <laughs> did you did you buy, did you get your brogle? Yeah. Nice. And well, you pull your mic to you, Luke. Pull your, you know, we've only been doing this for six I years. <laughs> it's it's all it, the the mirth and merriment just happens whenever Luke is here. Hey, I like the sigils on your shirt on your hat too. That's pretty cool. So, well, can, so continue, now. Josh. Before um, we, you know, I, I knew when Luke showed so, up, he's so, going to get it completely derailed. So the, alien, the alien fairy link has has been much celebrated, but what has been much ignored is the alien fairy was the is the fairy Sasquatch thing, um, which you know if you look at um, a lot of Celtic lore, it talks about fairies braiding horses' manes <clears throat> happens and is attributed <clears throat> to Sasquatch today. Um, You'll find similar to alien and fairy tales, people feeling paralyzed in the presence of Sasquatch. Supposedly, some people claim that Sasquatch might live underground. There are similar smells involved. Um, uh, one of the, you know, one of the interesting things that I thought was a fairy Sasquatch link, uh, is that, uh, there's a type of, um, solitary fairy in the Scottish Highlands that's said to live called the Gilly, it's called the, uh, the Gilly Doo. Which is, you know, it's this large, shaggy entity covered in detritus and, you know, just uh, just uh, leaves and, you know, uh, debris from the forest. And that's where we get the term ghillie suit. And this connection is not lost on Australian special forces who call their ghillie suits yowie suits. And yowie is the, you know, the Australian Bigfoot. So that's, there's, there's, there's a fairy Bigfoot connection that not a lot of people talk about, um, you know, explicitly in sort of the British Isles, you'll see a, a taller, shaggy sort of fairy f- folk, uh, known as the Woodwows, which appear in sort of iconography as the green man, um, that you'll see. Have you ever watched Bigfoot and Wild Boy? No, well, what is that? I don't even know what that is. Yeah, your research is incomplete if you've not watched Bigfoot and Wild That was on Saturday morning. That was on Saturday mornings. Where this, I think it was this kid that got lost out in the woods and Bigfoot raised him. Nice. And they would solve crimes and they would, like, people were in distress. It sounds amazing. And Bigfoot would usually have to rescue Wild Boy because Wild Boy was a little more impetuous. Than Bigfoot was. That sounds but amazing. It's, it's based on a true story. That reminds me of my that reminds me of my favorite coast to coast call in that I experienced, which was. Um, oh, this is why you were on coast. Yeah, coast, so right? I was on coast, and I was I was talking about my my first book about you know the food and drink offerings of things. It's been a very sober conversation, and somebody calls in and says. 
Yeah, I just wanted you guys to know that uh, I was watching uh, season two of Little House on the Prairie, and in the background, you can see very clearly Bigfoot is riding a chariot across the stream. <laughs> Episode five of season two is Bigfoot on a chariot. <laughs> and thank God Nap was like, well, thanks, color. That's great. Let's get back to something regarding the matter at hand. <laughs> what the hell do you say to that? You know? That was better than my experience on there. Because George Norrie just wanted to talk about White Castles when I was the guest. That, really? and, <laughs> that and where I worked in area on the, at Wright Patterson where the aliens were stored at one place. And <laughs> he wanted to know about that the whole time rather than the Did topic the aliens the like White Castle? Right. <laughs> Wow. (laughs) Well, Mike, I mean, you know where all the secrets are over there, and everybody knows. I can't even confirm or deny that. Right. (laughs) Although I did work work with the guy known as the Hawk in the aviary. Nice. (laughs) I did work with him regular, and I didn't know until after I'd worked with him that that's who he was, until he was outed on Coast to Coast, actually. Nice. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Ernie Kellerstrass. My my aviary bird would be the tit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go over to Randall. Hello, sir. Hello, Adam. You just kind of just patiently listening. Please, well, please, please elevate hey, the conversation. Stuff. I'm having thoughts as we go along here, <laughs> thinking about um, you know uh, the connection with the landscape because when I was up there in the glens uh, in western New York. I was so reminded of Irish landscapes as I would picture them. And um, then come to find out that uh, there's a rich fairy lore and little people and amongst the native peoples of that area. And so I thought that was very curious. Yeah, I think that whatever the phenomena is, it's tied very much to the land. We were sort of talking about this a little bit today, but I think that the land plays an integral part in whatever this is. And, you know, however true it may be, I think that the land plays a role, definitely. The idea that that there may be certain qualities to certain landscapes that can actually induce perceptual changes or conscious changes in consciousness. That was kind of the idea we were about on the way up here. Because it certainly does seem like forces, geomagnetic forces that we know can affect consciousness. And we know that those geomagnetic forces can uh, be altered by shifts um, in the landscape, tectonic plates moving, uh, Stresses propagated along fault lines can set up uh, fluctuations in the geomagnetic field. And we know that that can have impacts on human consciousness, human perception. So there may be some basis to this idea that there's a link between human consciousness and landscapes that would be conducive to having certain kinds of experiences. And I think Mm -hmm. Paul Devereaux did -hmm. a lot of that kind of work showing the connection between geological formations and uh, Fortean types of phenomena. And we were talking earlier about Persinger mm-hmm. and um, the work um, space-time transients and unusual events that goes back to the 70s where they saw a very powerful st- statistical correlation between certain geological structures and Fortean events, particularly structures that are known to have measurable and quantifiable uh, energetic properties, particularly along fault lines. Speaking of that, what about other ingredients or elements that could be in geology? For example, like radon, 
uranium, things like this, magnet, magnetic other components of the soil. Could that have an effect on the collective psychology I of would, communities in those areas? I would certainly not be dismissive of an idea like that. Um, yeah, getting into particularly. Um, and the types of, of minerals and metals that work mm-hmm. in, that find their way into the biosphere, into the food we eat, yeah. the water we drink. And we were, again, we were talking about this earlier. Um, you know, because so many of so much of the water comes from underground that we consume, and when water is flowing underground, it takes on the properties of the material that it's flowing through, mm-hmm. and it can literally, you know, take up minerals and have mineral content um, that right. is unique to the particular rock types that it's flowing through, and we drink that water. And um, you know, it's a sobering thought when you think that the largest creatures on this planet are mushrooms. But like the largest Fungi. footprint, yeah, and those who have hallucinogenic components to them could pervade the whole ecosystem of a region uh, through the water supply, mm-hmm. and not only humans but animals sure. and everything else in a whole region could have a common dose from what's right under their feet. The possibilities here are pretty mind-boggling mm-hmm. when you begin to contemplate not only what hard science is showing to us, but what we can also now, with that context, look back at some of what our ancestors were doing thousands of years ago in a whole new a whole new light, a whole new context, and go, mm-hmm. okay, this isn't maybe, this isn't just some superstitious, meaningless thing that they were doing out of ignorance, but they actually knew what they were doing, and it was right. specific actions designed to have specific results, mm-hmm. and this is what, what they were doing, because there so many of the Sacred structures mm-hmm. all over the world are built over underground water and where oftentimes mm-hmm. water will surface. And springs mm-hmm. have always been a place of particular sanctity. And many of the pagan sites were based around springs. And then when they became Christianized in Europe, the Christians took those over and built abbeys and monasteries mm-hmm. and cathedrals on right. top of the old pagan sites. Right. Chart Cathedral is well known to have, it has a well that you can, if you go down in the crypt, there's a deep well there, and that well feeds into this undergro- underwater stratum. And there's mm-hmm. actually several underground um, watercourses that intersect under where the high altar used to stand. Mm-hmm. Things like this could be coincidence or it could be part of the design of the thing. It was done with intent. Well, if you think about other uh, forms of matter that have that effect from the ground, probably one of the most famous ones I can think of is the Oracle at Delphi, who actually had the the gases released, you know, when they had the little tripod suspended over it. That had an effect on the whole world because people from around the world came to get the wisdom, kings and everyone else, based upon exposure to what was down there. That's all internal. If you look external... I, I think you could trace most of the well-documented, what we would call idols in the world or other kind of relics, even at the Kaaba, are things that appear to be extraterrestrial in that meteorites are things that have some other bizarre properties. They took note of it and knew it wasn't normal yes. for their environment, and it maybe even changed their behavior and response when they were around them. Uh, and, of course, our literary fields have made so much about that about people being changed whether it's the was it the color uh what was uh lovecraft's uh, the the color outer space or something mm-hmm. like that color but there's so space. many variations yeah. on that theme that have touched into that and probably old legends mm-hmm. where something interloped in that looked like a natural structure but uh, everything changed after that yes well 
I mean, the, the things from space that interact with Earth are loaded with all kinds of interesting exotic materials. Mm-hmm. And so when you have an impact, there is a, a, a type of cosmic <coughs> alchemy that can alter the whole trajectory of the biosphere on the planet. Right. Right. And when an impact like that happens, basically for, for a short ter- period of time, it'll strip away the ozone layer mm-hmm. and allow cosmic radiation to come in. It will deposit platinum group metals into the, into the rock substructure mm-hmm. and it'll fuse those cosmic materials like the ruthenium and zirconium and iridium and platinum with terrestrial materials. At the same time, it will cause a major fracturing of the of the crust, which now allows the subterranean water to pick up those exotic materials and convey them throughout the the substructure. They they emerge from the ground and in the form of springs, and the vegetation begins to form around the springs. And so, I think we're looking at kind of a type of cosmic alchemy there mm-hmm. that. That, um, and in the legends of the people, all they would know is they saw something fall from the sky, yeah. and suddenly they perceived things differently, and things changed around their environment. They perceived. It makes you wonder what would have happened if Oumuamua had passed a little bit more closely to Who? Earth. Oumuamua, the uh, the one that was coming. Right? Yeah, you're saying it right. Okay. <laughs> the one that was coming from outside the, the solar system. Extra, the the, the um, interstellar object that passed, cigar shape. Oh, right. oh yeah, yeah, that thing. Mater- that, covered yeah. in some sort of organic material that no one has yeah. really talked about. How, how did they determine that? I'm not, I'm not sure. certain how that was actually determined. But Well, I'm going to ask you this, since we're on this subject, and this uh, job my memory about this. I watched this documentary called Patient 17 on Netflix. And it was about this guy that was getting, it was Dr. John Lear. And he was going to see John Lear, Roger Lear, sorry, Roger Lear, the guy, the, the podiatrist that uh, did the alien implant stuff. Mm-hmm. So he takes out, you know, they, they take out these alien implants. And I don't know what this is, you know, since I'm not an extraterrestrial hypothesis person, I don't actually believe that it's extraterrestrial. But in actuality, it really is because they're, they're pulling, they do this analysis of it and they have all these different elements that come from not necessarily outside the solar system, but just not on Earth. So any thoughts about what that could be coming from you guys, different points of view? I mean, like it's, it's baffling to take a Patrick Harper <clears throat> demonic reality sort of view of it. Mm hmm. Um, these, these, these things, which reflect, um, which sort of are reflections of union archetypes have the ability to manifest real substantial objects and, um, reactions from our physical world. If you look at, for example, the fairy faith, there are tons of what are called fairy artifacts, fairy boots, Fairy jerkins, Fairies fairy boots. flags, fairy, every every time, man, <laughs> follows me around on every podcast, and fairies, you know that it's true. Fairies wear boots, um, but uh, do I think that these are actual like little little artifacts from little people? No, I don't. But I suspect that they, alongside something like what are so called implants, <clears throat> might exist on that sort of same spectrum of something being able to create a measurable. Um, artifact in our world but at the same time like as i as those words come out of my mouth that's like the least scientific possibility ever you know sure. i mean it, it's predicated on a lot of on a lot of uh, a well lot you of- also have the apport phenomenon too which is very similar 
right in right. a way to this alien it, as far quote as, unquote alien implant as far thing. As the implants i saw something like that on tv once on SCTV, where the aliens came, <laughs> and it, it when it took them over, it looked like a leaf of cabbage on the back of their neck. <laughs> Do you remember that? It took over Eugene Levy. You know, that was another one based on a true story too. I, don't know it. I think John Candy to come. To I love it, me some too. SCTV. I do. Um, but uh, you know, it's so that, that's 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 a that's like the esoteric of the most esoteric. Um, uh, hypotheses, which at that point, if you're gonna if you're gonna extrapolate that much, you might as well. It, it actually is easier to say extraterrestrial implants, you know, from literal aliens. So I'm willing to you know sort of make that caveat. I'm sure Randall has something much more sophisticated to say. <laughs> uh, about that particular subject, no, I I don't have anything particularly awesome to contribute to that. I was wondering though, when you your your book on smells, and I, I've always been curious about the connection between. The olfactory sensation in in your memory processes, mm-hmm. because I know, and probably a lot of people have experienced this. Certain smells. I mean, it's, right. for me, it's almost like mm-hmm. I'm I'm transplanted. I, That's been like documented. A time machine. The scientists have said that that is the one sense more than any tied yeah. to your memory. They've yeah. confirmed it, that the sense the smell is. It's that it's that Proustian idea that some sort of sense can sort of bring you back, and and it's not necessarily so much about. Remembering, it's more about not forgetting, if that makes any sense, in terms of the way that it's wired in your brain. Um, there there are certain certain smells will be coded to certain life events and certain expectations. And it really is a, it really is sort of a shortcut for the brain to know when it's in a bad situation um, or in a good situation or what to mm-hmm. expect. Um, you know, I I would argue one of, one of the big things that Terrence McKenna would talk about was um, how – uh, you know, we think of telepathy as it's depicted in popular culture as um, hearing someone else's thoughts in your brain as like a narrated sort of form. And his his take was that telepathy would be much more um, would be much more elegant if it was something where it was just a sense of immediate knowing. And he compared sort of the uh, the way that, he, that octopi share moods with textures and colors as being a much more elegant form of telepathy, because immediately, instead of actually processing a sentence from someone else's brain, you immediately know that um, particular mood or thought that this other octopus is having. And he claimed that this would sort of be, the, be even a superior form of communication to something like telepathy. However, I would posit that... Um, you know, if, if there was some sort of force that wanted to convey an emotion immediately and without question, it could actually harness the power of smell because that way you don't even have to process it. It's a gut reaction. It's a visceral thing. You can't help but be taken back to a certain place because of it. So do you have any particular smells in your, if you get a, so not no smells, right? No smells. But, um, I remember the first time I ever had peanut butter pie, I was, um, I tried peanut butter pie. I was, I, was, <laughs> I was ten years old, and I'd never seen Planet of the Apes. Right, and Charlton Heston is standing, you know, standing trial in front of um, in front of Doctor Zayas for his crimes, and it's just like, look, I was, oh guys, I was ten. Come on, so it was like, it's sort of it like was, you remember in the JFK assassination where you were, yeah, when Zayas was, yeah, it was, it was such a, it was such a, a bleak, <laughs> it was such a bleak, and um. 
you know, I didn't, I didn't know the ending and it was, it was, it was, it was sort of a bleak scenario. And I will, you know, to this moment associate the taste of peanut butter pie with this sort of nihilistic, you know, you blew it up sort of ending. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I, you know, so you have some tastes, but some not taste. any particular smell. No, so. but like you, you can't deny like that there's a strong, a very strong relationship between smell and taste. True. I mean, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, so it's, it's kind of the same thing. Well, yeah, because you can't taste things properly if you're holding your nose. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, I mean, to me, te- tequila smells like college. So there's that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, immediately communicating with somebody else, you know, something about them from just smell and getting all that. I have been told that about other people toward me because at various times when they smelled me, they'd say, Mike, you've had chili today or something like that. <laughs> So they've known those things. But, you know, one thing I was thinking about the senses. Who knew Dr. Future was going to bring the comedy? Uh, I got a big old bowl of chili today. <laughs> oh, no. I hate that. Uh, but, but speaking of smell, just pondering that idea of the other senses, I would guess that most likely smell is probably one of your senses least likely to lie to you yeah. and least deceptive over all the other senses. For that reason, it was sort of looked down upon by a lot of early philosophers because, um, well, by some philosophers, it was, it was regarded as, as, as more pure. In fact, I think Aristotle was one of the ones who said that, uh, that you know, well, this is where we get the phrase "the nose knows" and a rose by any other name. Um, but in some, I, in some senses, it seemed uh, in, to some philosophers it seemed more base and animalistic. Um, you know, Freud posited the idea that. Uh, the reason that we place less of an emphasis upon smell as a society is because we graduated from being four-legged, more primal animals mm-hmm. smelling each other's genitalia. <laughs> we, <laughs> well, we some rose, of us. <laughs> we rose from the ground. <laughs> we rose from the ground, and as we rose, we placed less of an emphasis on smell mm-hmm. because it was deemed to be a more animalistic sense. And, and yet, an animal can come up and can smell when you have cancer. When we don't have a clue what's going on. Yeah, they used to say you know, dogs couldn't do that, but they, but they but actually we, can. But in our literature, we always will use, like, I, I smell a rat. Yeah. Or I have something, and we use in our nose. We know it's something that will tell us what our other senses have. You know, even if you, you hold your nose or it's, it's stopped up, your taste buds will lie to you. Mm-hmm. You, you, you totally yeah. lose a sense of what your food is. You, you know your eyes can lie to you. A New World Order relies on that. So you know all of these things, except the sense is pretty good. You know, well, but but there there is there is um, there is there are some caveats to that. So um, people who are blindfolded and presented with uh, Parmesan cheese and told that it is yeah, you Parmesan talk about cheese, this in the book. Yeah, yeah. said that it's Parmesan cheese will will be delighted, but you can hold Parmesan cheese in front of someone else's no- someone someone's nose and tell them that someone vomited. And it elicits a completely mm-hmm. different reaction because they're yeah. the same sort of acids involved in both, in, in, right. in you know, in, in, in vomit. And, well, we know uh, there's crossover. It doesn't mean like everyone has a unique. Like for example, a lot of times black coffee smells like uh, vomit or bo to me, mm-hmm. and even like a hot pizza, as good as it is, sometimes smells like body odor when I smell yeah. it. So that means that you can't always assign each individual thing in life to an individual smell. There's a little because overlap the in the indexing system. Right. It's, 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 it's sort of like more like a matrix of senses working together. Right. I think we need to test this. <laughs> we need some pizza. <laughs> it smells to me like we're testing it now. Uh, that might happen well, at some point. I wasn't going to say anything, but... <laughs> Randall. Yes, Adam. Very interesting that I have you here in the studio because yeah, how, it's, it's, how did you manage? That? I know, I man. Know. I know. I know. It was it was a lot. It was a lot of negotiations with it my was. people and your people. And yeah, Josh, was, what are you trying to do to me over here? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, you told me, you assured me that you would feed me, so. Yeah, yeah. A little lap dance no, never hurt actually, anybody, Adam. A- actually, Adam, I have been wanting an excuse to get up to this area and explore yeah, Nashville. Absolutely. You gave me that excuse. Absolutely. So Hopefully we'll get to do some of that tomorrow. Good. Hey, Adam, what is Old Stone Fort Archaeological Park? It is a, an, it's like an ancient Indian Native American structure that was built in prehistory. Excursion not, Randall? Yeah, it's over there by, uh, it's in between, okay. it's like, yeah. b- roughly about like, right between here and Chattanooga, so it's about How an far hour. Is it off the interstate? Five minutes. Nice. Yeah, let's, let's yeah. get there. Yeah. 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 Well, you now, should go over there. if you're going there, why don't you go to Frozen Head State Park? Have you that ever been weird. there Ain't on no head like Frozen Head. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever been to Frozen no, Head State? tell me about it. I don't know. It's I see signs for it on mm-hmm. I-40 between here and Knoxville. Frozen and I don't, Head. And I don't know whose Frozen Head it is, <laughs> where they keep the Frozen Head. It's Walt Disney. But it's a state park, and it's Frozen Head State Park. <laughs> I don't know if it's like. Uh, uh, Let's see. Oh, uh, um, who who wrote the book that hideous strength? C.S. Lewis, you know. Yeah. About the so. the uh, head that was decapitated. I don't know if it's. Well, it sounds to like that. we need to make a field trip, Mike. I know. Well, why don't we you need re- to go to Frozen Head. Show from Frozen Head State. Yeah, Park? yeah. We'll have a ritual at Frozen Head. If I could do it from the uh, Kelly the, Greenman uh, oh, reunion, you could do, do the headless right at Frozen Head. <laughs> there you go. That would be the bomb. But I want to read this you because your your work on cometary impact, Randall. Oh yeah, is now. I mean, you know, this has been like your thing now. I think for what yeah. over twenty years that you've been talking Since about this mid eighties. Okay, so a good while. Time is, it, it, you know, I can't pinpoint it exactly, but somewhere between mid eighties and early nineties. Right. The scenario gelled pretty much. And so this so is... The, the, basically, the evidence has been out there all this time. Yeah, yeah. Right. This is beginning to be... Apparently, has been... Is beginning to be really taken seriously. Because this is from ScienceDaily.com. I okay. saw this on the internet. Just someone randomly, other than anybody that we know, post... I saw somebody Somebody's post randomly. this. Randomly posted it. Yeah, <laughs> randomly. randomly. Yeah, yeah. Randomly. <laughs> so, I'll read a little bit of this. On a ho-hum day some 12,800 years ago, the Earth had emerged from another ice age. Things were warming up, and the glaciers had retreated. Out of nowhere, the sky was lit with fireballs. This was followed by shock waves. Fires rushed across the landscape and dust clogged the sky, cutting off the sunlight. As the climate rapidly cooled, plants died, food sources were stuffed out, and the glaciers advanced again. Ocean currents shifted, setting the climate into a colder, almost ice age state that lasted an additional thousand years. Finally, the climate began to warm again, and people again merged into a world with fewer large animals and a human culture in North America that left behind completely different kinds of spear points. Okay, that's all I'm going to read on that. Okay. But I think everybody gets the... Gets the gist on that. Yeah, there was the Clovis culture that preceded the impact yeah. at about 12,008, 12, somewhere between 12,008 and 12,900 years ago. Uh, they disappeared, and in most places around North America where they had a strong cultural presence, there was a gap of anywhere from three to 900 years. And, then and they're called the, Clo- the Clovis culture because this was the spear points that were found first at Clovis, New Mexico. Clovis, New Mexico. Which right we there. passed right through there on our way to Roswell. Our, uh, Blackwater Draw was the site. Yep. It was one of the uh, early man sites, the first in, in, in America to show a correlation between uh, extinct megafaunal remains and um, 
human activity, particularly spear points. In fact, there was a, a, a mammoth skeleton found with an embedded spear point in it. And it's interesting that this whole idea of the human predation as being the cause of the great megafaunal extinctions at the end of the Ice Age has been predicated upon that particular find and maybe two or three others, um, which really is quite a scant uh, amount of actually hard evidence to then infer from that that human hunters exterminated over 100 species of, of megafauna at the end of the last Ice Age. But that is now a politically acceptable explanation because of the fact that we are now in the Anthropocene and human beings, humans' activity is supposedly now going yeah. to cause the sixth great mass extinction in the history of the planet, which... If I'd say we're a little more anything, advanced than then, though, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, yes. Well, first of all, anyone who's familiar with the um, the conditions, the, the planetary conditions during the Great Five would know that this is not really, you know, in other words, the sky has not been black with dust choked for six months. There has not been global firestorms. Just wait till March, though. Yeah, well, in March, yeah, we're getting ready for that. Yeah, That's, after the Olympics. Oh, what happens in March? Uh, well, my birthday. I know the uh, <laughs> the head of the CIA back in September or September twentieth. He says within six months we're going to war with North Korea. Oh. and I and I didn't realize. Well, of course, you know, there's been so many about Iran. You know, for what fifteen years it had not happened, but uh, I suddenly realized why they would pick March because the Seoul area Olympics will be over this month. So. Hmm. We need a wag the dog scenario. So, you know, you might have to amend the formula in a month and a half. So get all the mileage out of it. You can't tell that. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know if there's enough megatonnage in the North Korean arsenal to get to the scale. Of I'm not really worried about fire. their megatonnage, but I get your point. Yeah. But, yeah, let's keep our fingers crossed because I don't think it'll serve our purposes to unleash the nuclear weapons after all these years. Um. God, there's that doesn't need to happen. Unless there's we need no to get, foreign policy objective that's worth that. Well, yeah, we please. Get no. something off the headlines. That may be the only reason to use it. Two minutes to midnight. Alien invasion. That's the only reason. The the uh, the the IAEA. That well, it was the the Bulletin for Atomic Scientists. I'm sorry. They just they just upped the clock to two minutes to midnight. Yeah, but that wasn't all just based on nuclear. That was also right climate change. Climate change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But um, mass extinction, though. Yeah. So, so yeah. This. What do you figure? If you if you go to the basically the scholarly sources of human population dynamics back into the Paleolithic, what you see is that during the end of the Ice Age, estimated human population globally might be five million people, and there were ten million woolly mammoths. Right. Right. And that's just one. Okay. So, how can small bands of perhaps twenty five or thirty Hunters on foot with stone tip spears exterminate the entire race of four species of proboscideans or elephants that occupied the earth at that time. But they don't want to go to the idea of a comet because now you see the idea that humans are causing the sixth great mass extinction plays into certain political agendas well, of, of basically social control. And we have this, this you know, self-flagellation urge as, yeah, as a species. <laughs> and it fits right in with the thing that we are causing, going to cause catastrophic climate change. It fits, the two are, are very compatible with each other into this notion that humans are a pariah on the earth and therefore all of our activities 
have to be controlled from cradle to grave, and every bit of our production, distribution, and consumption has to be controlled, because if we don't, we're going to have this carbon dioxide-induced climate catastrophe. But my point is that when you actually study the, the extreme <coughs> nature and magnitude of these previous extinction events, of which there have literally been hundreds, we're not in anything quite like that at the present. I'm sorry to say. So how do you think it will play out? How will another extinction and recovery happen based upon what you see well, in the both, progression? Well, both. I mean, the mass extinctions that we've seen are triggered either by exogenic or endogenic forces. Endogenic meaning from within the planet. So you might have extreme volcanic eruptions mm -hmm. that can uh, cause total climatic and environmental breakdown on a planetary scale, or exogenic, meaning from outer space. And exogenic, I think, is the dominant one because it seems like there's a high degree of correlation between the great impact events in Earth history, then followed by major volcanic episodes. What about massive solar flares or something that like could that? Could be, that yes, be and that could be another one. Yes, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because that could very well be another factor, as well as things like nearby supernovas. Um, mm -hmm. There could be a whole host of cosmic things that, that our ancestors recognized that we've forgotten about only because we've managed to build this 5,000 year of history during a cosmically quiet period of, period of time. The weird thing about supernovas is that if that were to happen to be our, our death shot or something close to it, it would have probably happened many, 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 many years ago from now, and our killer shot is just taking us time getting to us. Yeah. If it's a supernova, which is sort of a sobering thought. My thought is that the main way that even a supernova that whose shockwave itself is not enough to um, seriously impact the Earth or the inner solar system could have effects on the outer zone of the solar system where the reservoir, the Kuiper disk or the Oort cloud of comets, which we were talking about this earlier, are so delicately poised between our sun in the nearby solar neighborhood, and it takes only a slight um, impression to dislodge them from that 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 position of, of quasi-stability that they're in and sending them spiraling towards maybe a near star or right into the sun. If you have a nearby supernova, it could be that that's followed by a hundred or two hundred thousand year period of enhanced cometary influx to the inner solar system. And Earth could then be subject to what you would think of like co uh, comet storms. And, and it, and, and the, the dating now of these celestial events, the impact type events appears to be clustering in a sort of a periodicity. In other words, they're not just happening, uh, uniformly through Earth history, but they're bunched. You see, like the Cretaceous impact that wiped out the dinosaurs may have had six or ten impacts all within a very short period of time. And so it may have not been one single impact that did the job, but it may have been multiple impacts. And we know that there are geomagnetic field collapses that have happened regularly, and they're being correlated now with great impact events. And the great volcanic extrusions, like the formation of the Columbia Basalt Plateau in the Pacific Northwest, the, the creation of the Siberian Traps in Siberia, which correlates precisely now with the Permian-Triassic event and the greatest mass extinction in Earth history, or the extrusion of the Deccan Traps, which seem to have been associated with the impacts of the Cretaceous tertiary event that killed the dinosaurs 66 million years ago. So it looks like there's this, this whole cosmic factor 
that we're now recognizing as an intrinsic part of Earth history. Mm-hmm. And um, that, I think, is where the direction we need to go. And I mean, if we are thinking long term about the survival of our particular civilization and ensuring that it doesn't go the way of dozens of other civilizations that have preceded us, we need to be taking that into account. Well, yeah, for me, the the, the three most criminal things that our leadership as a species hasn't prepared us for are the Yellowstone <laughs> supervolcano, which isn't the only one. Another carrying. Well, yeah. So supervolcano events, the things like the Carrington event and, uh, and, you know, asteroidal impact. I think those are three things that should be a priority for us that yeah. will really catch us with our pants down if they actually happen. Yeah. And, and, and these are all arguments for, uh, colonies, on other planets, at least to increase our odds. I would say we could start. We've got an obvious um, um, direction to go because we have a satellite of Earth, which would be the first obvious place to mm-hmm. to um, basically that's where we need to back up everything, right. back up our entire knowledge base. Our scientific base needs to be backed up on the moon, which is only about one eightieth as susceptible to cosmic impact as Earth because of its smaller cross-section and its much smaller mass. Well, plus, since it's tidally locked, the exposed to the outside on the far side yes. would get most of the brunt. The Earth would actually protect, protect the, side, the that near face, side that faces itself. The only thing that would be so bad is if it was so cataclysmic that it affected the orbit of Earth. We might lose the moon somewhere, but it would still be good insurance, like you say, to have it as a backup data yeah. source and technology and, and some kind of means on how to get it back yeah. from there. Well, interestingly, you know, you said if, if, the, if the impact was of that extreme magnitude and we lost the moon. but And that's, you couldn't say absolutely that that couldn't happen. But when you look at the density distribution of the of the cosmic entities that are out there, the bigger you get, the less probable the encounter becomes. Actually, what I think is the most dangerous um, threat to us in the near future would be smaller scale things that come in in swarms. Like, or like a Tunguska event? Like a Tunguska, yeah. yes, like a Tunguska of 1908 event, um, but a swarm of them, you see. And this is much more likely than a single big impact because we know that comets come into the inner solar system and they have a life cycle. They disintegrate over a period of anywhere from uh, 1,000 to 10,000 years as they orbit the sun. And as they as they disintegrate, they litter the inner solar system with the byproducts of their debris. Mm-hmm. Um, and Earth can pass through these streams of cosmic debris. And we know now for certain that they it has done it in the past. And this is I think the most likely explanation for what happened 12,800 years ago, that we we probably passed within the tail of a large disintegrating comet nucleus and got multiple impacts. And the work that I've been doing for the last, well, since the late 90s, is trying to determine the locus of those impacts. And most of the criticism that has come, and there have been... There's been an organized effort to discredit this idea of a major cosmic impact 12,800 years ago. And it's coming from these defenders of this status quo interpretation that, um, you know, human hunters exterminated the woolly mammoth. So they're, they're putting this meme out there that this idea that humans have, have, have been the cause of this mass extinction 12,000 years ago. And then this is now being offered as exhibit A in making the case that humans are now repeating that mm-hmm. and, and saying, see, we've already done it. Well, now here comes the Comet Research Group, 
and says, no, it was from something from outer space. Mm-hmm. See, they're already heavily invested in the political idea of humans causing a mass extinction. So they find the idea of a cometary impact very unpalatable. And mm-hmm. they organized a, an effort to do everything they could to discredit this idea when it was first proposed in 2007 by Richard Firestone and his colleagues. Uh, I think there was about seven or eight of them that authored that first paper. The Comet Research Group now has grown to over 50 members. And I had the opportunity last fall to go to a, and spend a, in a roundtable with five of the members, five of the authors of that paper that has just come out that they were talking about. Um, yeah, this is the University of Kansas paper? The, the, I read the, the article about. geology paper that that was referenced from. Gotcha. Several of those, like Christopher Moore, he told me, he said, well, I came in to debunk this idea. Mm-hmm. But once I came in and I started looking at the evidence, I'm now on board with it. Yeah, and he wasn't the only one. Mark Demetroff said the same thing. He came on mm-hmm. as a skeptic. Same thing. They begin to look at the evidence, and it's been growing in credibility every year. And now this the, the newest paper, back-to-back papers coming out, is basically now proving that at 12,800 years ago, there was a global firestorm. Well, yeah. let, let me ask you this. The uh, It seems like to me, then, there's another controversial area when we talk about colonizing other remaining plants, and that's the idea of terraforming. Mm-hmm. Because just like the political correctness of mankind being bad and doing these things and you know i have data to suggest that the same thing about us polluting other worlds with our activities it seems like to me an argument that i just thought of because of your talk about a justification for terraforming is to get good practice on terraforming planets so because one day we may have to do it for our own in other words we might have to recover it seems like to me the weak link in our ecosystem is our atmosphere Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that we're really in bad shape. I mean, we can purify water if it gets polluted or other things, but if we lose part of our atmosphere or it gets really, really messed up, that's a hard thing to do. It might be a good idea to start practicing on Mars or even Venus, for example, to to redo that simply because we might need to use it on Earth one day. Venus provides a lot of easy solves for a lot of the problems that Mars has in terms right. of gravity. And- well, gravity, it's got ample energy. It's a lot easier to cool stuff down than to heat it up when you're that far. I mean, the runaway heat in in Venus, you know, there's been talk, and now I'm glad to hear just in the news they've revived the idea of the floating cities, mm-hmm. which to me is a brilliant idea on Venus to do. You can add to as many as you want. But Cloud city, maybe? Well, you know, you, <laughs> what have we here? You start shading. I'm Billy D. You start shading <laughs> that planet, and eventually over time, you know, might be more than uh, on my watch. But you could eventually start cooling off some things and have a very interesting possibility on Venus. It's a lot harder to make Mars warmer than it is to make Venus cooler, right. in my in my behalf. And that would certainly be handy in case we ever have to bring it back, you know. I have always been more yeah. gravitating towards sort of the O'Neill concept of getting outside of Earth's gravitational well and begin harvesting the raw materials that's already out there between the planets. Particularly what's interesting there is once we have taken an inventory of the cosmic neighborhood and we really know what's there, and we will, at this point, we only know about 10% of what's out there, right, in the the immediate cosmic neighborhood, the stuff that could potentially affect life here on Earth, right? Okay, if we look at that stuff, what, what it turns out is that the most accessible is the stuff that's also the most dangerous because it's the stuff that's the closest to us. Mm-hmm. And when you consider 
You know, my grandfather, when he was a kid, the main mode of transportation on earth was horseback or you walk. That was my grandfather. So a generation, two generations before me, right? He was born in the late 1800s. I was born in the mid 20th century. Just the things that I have seen since I was born in 1951 is just phenomenal, right? Then that the half century before that, same thing. Now, if we project another century from where we're at now, we could most definitely be harvesting asteroids. We could be processing the materials of asteroids, which everything that we are now extracting from the Earth through our mining operations is encased in those asteroids. All of the the hydrocarbons, the, the, the precious metals, the rare earth materials, all of this water, right? Well, the O'Neill concept is that, look, once we get outside Earth's atmosphere, that is where solar energy is really going to come of age. Because now you've got access 24 hours a day, unfettered solar energy that could actually be driving orbital factories, right? We could, within a few generations, offload the entire industrial base of our modern civilization into orbit, thereby releasing the planet from from the burden of carrying industrial civilization. You're talking about American jobs over there. Well, I am talking about American jobs. Yes, sir. I'm talking about a, pot- a realistic potential. Then we might be one big rust belt at that point. No, then, I, see, I, I know what you at mean. At that point, at that right. point, we could be like Blade Runner. Earth to the Garden of Eden yeah. at that point, you see. Yeah. And. You figure one square meter of free space has 10 times the available solar energy that would be falling on a solar collector set out in the middle of the summer in Death Valley at high noon on a clear day. Multiply that by 10, and now that's the solar energy you've got once you get 5,000 miles out, you see. And there's no reason why, except for the fact that the lack of vision, the lack of motivation. Everybody's too consumed with bullshit. The well, crap that fills mainstream media that most people yeah. are thinking about and worrying about and stressing about in in the long term. You're here on that one. Means nothing. Yep. Right. Yeah. Well, it's. I mean, it's it's the human nature thing. It's easy. It's it, <laughs> human beings are to couches and sitting and worrying as humankind is to the planet Earth and sitting and worrying. We we all want to just stay. We'd rather stay sedentary and fret than actually get off our asses and do something. Well, what we need is a is a repetition of Tunguska nineteen oh eight, because what you had there was the detonation of a fifteen megaton cosmic missile that came into the Earth's atmosphere, probably almost certainly a member of the Torrid stream, because perfect timing of the year, came from the right place in space, right where the torrid stream would have been coming, the torrid meteor stream. It blew up with the energy of a 15 megaton hydrogen bomb, flattened 890 square miles of old growth Taiga forest, which is essentially about the same area you would find (coughs) within the perimeter highway of any major city in America, Atlanta, Washington, D.C., Seattle, etc. Right? Bring in a little 150 meter, I mean, 150 foot diameter cosmic missile like that, only instead of blowing it up over remote Siberia, drop it over a major city somewhere on Earth, and I guarantee it would be consciousness changing. Well, I thought we had our wake-up Absolutely. call. Was it Chernobinsk? Was it? Chelyabinsk. Chelyabinsk. Well, yeah. it wasn't enough. You know, 1,500 people were injured, right? A couple of thousand buildings were damaged, but nobody, to my knowledge, was killed. Now, a Tunguska event happening over a major 
urban area, you would have several million Millions, people yeah. dying yeah. instantly. And you would have major destruction. I mean, the kind of destruction. See, it's interesting that Tunguska is like the lower level of the cosmic echelon, the cosmic hierarchy. It's at the bottom. It's the baby stuff. But interestingly, if we look at our own nuclear capabilities for that we can now release energies, the very top of that is like the bottom end of the cosmic spectrum, the cosmic scale. <laughs> that puts it into perspective. See, our biggest hydrogen bombs are about equivalent to the smallest cosmic missiles right. that are detectable in the in the record. But now Tunguska, see, it the thing you gotta understand is about that, it didn't hit the ground. It blew up in the air. A shot air five miles up and that and that shock wave then came mm -hmm. down and Flattened, it's played out that forest in, tell, in every yeah, direction. The way does, they does, that work, yeah. does that work the same as as, an, as a as a hydrogen bomb? That it, detonating it in midair is, yes. is more is more yes. effective. It's more, more effective yes. because yeah. the radius of damage is greater because less energy is absorbed by the impact. But even though it was an atmospheric detonation, there was a major seismic response that some estimate might have been up to about a six point zero on the Richter scale. Mm -hmm. um, so that's very interesting. And and it tells you what even a small impact into the Earth's surface, the kind of repercussions that could ensue well, from that. Well, and Tunguska was seen and felt and heard for, from, like, incredible distances away. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean... Yeah, many thousands of square yeah. miles of... Yeah, because the was, thing passed it like, over. It was like it was like a you know a cosmic Krakatoa in that sense. Yes, <laughs> I got yes. a question for Adam on that. Adam, you remember the the graphic novel Watchmen? Yes. And sort of the end of that, where there was sort of a false flag that was created to sort of right. Yeah, in the graphic like novel, that. it's an alien, it's fake it's, alien invasion. Uh, I, um, I, yeah. I could see some creative, enterprising uh, breakthrough uh, captains of industry today that could almost artificially create something like this. Uh, for example, those same captains of industry today are really into the space program. They're really into trying to get a footprint on other planets and are very frustrated that there's minimal support for it. To the stars! They don't, don't. Don't disparage Elon Musk in front of Rob. He well, gets, I'm not. I'm gets... not saying anything about anybody because there's multiple. All I'm just saying is, it, it's in the realm of possibility that one of them could be so frustrated that something like this maybe could be false flagged to help promote what they consider to be a good response. Uh, it's possible, possible, but I think with what Randall think, you know, like, I we're kind of in a turkey shoot. Listen, if you're following the news about once a month now. We're seeing shit fly by us. Yeah. Yeah. Fly. It's like, you know, it's like the cosmos is constantly trying to get our attention and saying, look, people, look, you know, your Earth is flying through a dense cloud of stuff in space. It's not empty like you imagined it was a few decades ago. Yeah. You know, it's highly populated with stuff I, flying around the sun and the earth is flying through that stuff yeah. i think there's a sort of an elegant spiritual metaphor if you if you acknowledge the the concept of panspermia spanpermia panspermia um <laughs> which is which is gaining more traction amongst the, the, the scientific establishment it's really elegant to me that this could be a planet uh a life giver or a planet killer both extraterrestrial oh collisions i think it is both and i, th I think, I think there, there's an elegant spiritual metaphor in there too like i think that's that that's really interesting to me that it, that it's it's all about size and what it brings in terms of in terms of the role that it plays either the giver of life or the taker mm -hmm. 
Well, I've always looked at it as sort of a metaphor for biological birth because the comet is the cosmic spermatozoan coming into the ovum, the egg, which is the earth. And once the egg gets fertilized, what, what does it do? It, 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 so you're talking about we need to build a big condom around it to keep look, from wiping it. Look, look, if I have a giant sperm, my wife don't blow up, dude. That's all I'm saying. All right, all right you guys. Let's let's now. get uh, let, let's get the comic relief in here, uh, Doctor Future. Present. I want to know. Hey, I, I want to just tell you, it yeah. is so exciting to be on here for your 2000th show. I just Thank want you. to applaud you on it. That is incredible. <laughs> Two hundred, one third of which has been you. <laughs> did you say two hundredth and not two thousand? So why the, in the heck did I come uh, here then? Uh, you have done this before. Yes, uh, yes. He's been live in the studio. Don't you see the lions on my face? He, he was well, here for the the life, the life force sucked out of me. Yeah, that's okay. He was here for the hundredth episode. He was here for the fiftieth. He was here for the second. 33rd and a third. Uh, that's right. I mean, it, there's been a lot of Dr. Future hey Josh, out here. Bring me a cookie. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All this heavy talk is making me hungry. I can't wait for the pizza anymore. Most people are taking a shot of liquor when Dr. Future comes on. Yeah. Stiff one. Let's talk about what your book you're working on right now. And Rand, I'm going to, well, I want to get back to you because I got a qu- another question, oh, but, uh, well, okay. I maybe, want to get maybe. to a- after people hear Dr. Future, they're hoping for extinction events. And, uh, I want, and then we're going to open the, the line to the peanut gallery over here. Okay. At least one person has some questions. <laughs> chopping at the bit. Well, you know, I'm working on a different book than when I was on here long, long ago. Yeah, yeah, you were only here back in December. Right, end of December, so, right. I'm in a different universe now. I, I'm being nice to my Russian friends now. I'm done dissing them. That'll be uh, out on the street eventually, so. Now I'm back to my, my old... Uh, well, fill in for the audience the, the books. What's the your, normal lineup of... Uh, what you you're know. working on, you know, like yeah. Randall and Josh, they haven't heard it you either about it. multi-volume series... As of now, the one I'm currently looking at probably just decided to split, so now it's going to be a full 10-volume series with the spinoff. It keeps growing. I know. Beyond all leaps and bounds. It's called The Holy War Chronicles, A Spiritual View of the War on Terror. And it grew from really being um, a documentation of what has happened in in the most recent two decades since, since the war on terror started, and what does it reflect about us as a culture, and particularly people of faith. And now it's grown into being the whole subject of religion-fueled wars each from the time from Cain and Abel on to now. And it just turns out there's about a thousand different facets to it, and each of those thousand have their own volume in this series. So I'm, I'm right at the penultimate uh, right now, which is gathering together, having educated people on history, uh, through the different Abrahamic phase of their dirty laundry and stuff like that and uh, the history of our America and the Western culture. Uh, I'm now focusing on who are some of the culprits right now, the rogues gallery. Uh, are you taking photos over here? No. Okay. I'm so tired of the paparazzi. I know. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. It's a, it's 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 hard to be you, Dr. Future. You have to dodge them all. Right. And so uh, I'm working now on the uh, the dubious characters, what we call the, the usual lineup of suspects. 
uh, of demagoguery when somebody's ready to go chase the other, somebody who's different or different culture or faith. And I'm showing some of the uh, bizarre motivations of some of these people, uh, which is a real revelation, particularly for people like me, people of faith, who uh, think they know who wears the white hats and who wears the black hats. And they take everybody at face value of what they say their motives are and what their purposes are. And in other words, extremely gullible and naive. And so uh, I'm getting into some rather strange motiv- uh, motivations that some of these people fighting the uh, religious culture war are doing right now that most people aren't aware of. So. What's the specific example of something that you're writing about in the book at, the, at this moment? Well, I'm finishing one chapter right now that's about 270 pages. It's one of my longer chapters wow. in a book. And I talk about a guy a few people know about, Nicholas Papa Nicolau. And he is sort of the... The, the crossroads where all all Roman roads pass in terms of the uh, more of the anti-Sharia, anti-Muslim, anti-Eastern culture. Uh, he he actually is tied really close to a lot of the religious right uh, televangelists and has formed sort of a semi-secret chivalrous society, a, a special sect offshoot of the Knights of Malta where they these TV evangelists dress up like uh, old crusaders and hold swords and knights. It's sort of like playing cowboys and Indians, but but they're serious about it. And it used to be, this just used to be the old nobility of Europe, whose time had long since passed, and they would do that to try to give each other titles of nobility and feel important again. These people are really more dangerous because they really have some agendas. They have... Uh, pull within the government, particularly in our current administration. Uh, and in fact, you get toward the latter part of it, there's some very, very disturbing information I have with some gentlemen who are in in control of things like the Family Research Council and things that are former mm-hmm. uh, founders of Delta Force that have lots of experience killing people with their bare hands. And, and evidently it's affect them psychologically, like a lot of people who do that kind of work. And uh, they have given strong indications that they are actually doing vigilante activities on their own on a global scale. And things that they're now starting, sort of like our president now, you know, they say is tweeting, basically. He's, he's his worst enemy. Well, these guys have loose lips, too. And for someone who's paying attention, they can connect the dots and find out that there are some things going on to destabilize the world now and lead us to a uh, culture of civ- a civilizational crisis. And then all it takes is a few Jack D. Rippers, like, you know, and Dr. Strangelove, to, to threaten everybody. And that's why I try to document those people and what they're up to now. What is their motive? Well, that's what I always right. come back to. Right. There's there's several different motives. Uh, I'm a practicing Christian, so I have to say, you know, I'm a person of faith. But if I really follow the founder of my faith, uh, uh, putting yourself last and putting others first, looking out for their interests before your own, right. are the most fundamental tenets of the founder of my faith. And, and basically what they've done is put everything on its ear. There's a paranoia. And in fact, the whole hard right culture that I've come out of, it's based upon paranoia. It's based upon rolling up your sleeves and defending yourself. All the things we were told not to do. For people who are secure in the afterlife and secure about a kingdom to come, it's not here. Uh, they have thrown away all of that, and they're going to fight for this earthly, fleshly kingdom, which is vulnerable to any you know, space shot or anything else. They, they sort of traded in their birthright of a kingdom that can't pass for one that's really, really vulnerable. And if somebody else doesn't destroy it, well, they'll destroy it. 
uh, on their own. And that's, that's to me, it's a definition of madness. Um, but uh, they feel so much that rather than to coexist along people who view things different than them, that they'd rather take out everything. As part of it, which which actually puts them in line with the people they're fighting, ISIS and the jihadists, they find themselves to be the same side of the same coin, just like in the Crusades. You know, the only people more butcherous than some of these Saracens were the Crusaders that fought them. Right. And so, it's, there's a sickness, there's a spiritual sickness of mindset when you take up the sword, uh, and you don't listen to what Jesus said. It, Put your swords down. Well, I suppose there's a feeling of sort of being chosen or being sort of anointed as a crusader for these causes, right? Well, and they anoint each other. Hmm. Uh, the ones I document uh, basically select each other to be noble knights. They handed each other uh, titles of nobility. And in fact, uh, uh, they have gotten some religious right figures and made themselves archbishops and in fact have manufactured a back history of apostolic succession. That means we are not to challenge at all what their views or perspective are right and wrong because they claim that their uh, legacy goes all the way back to the apostles. Right. So therefore, they shouldn't be challenged in, in whatever they lead us into. It, it gets extremely bizarre. Uh, in fact, it's really strange because some yes. of the things we've talked about here, I would never think talking about these kind of religious and political things going on that I would get into exopolitics. But the same guys who run these things about um, uh, fighting the Islamic menace and things like that, they're same people at their, their forums and roads uh, overseas actually bring in exopol- exopolitics specialists. Um, George Adamski, one of his main disciples, is one of these people that's part of it. Holy so you talk really? about strange bedfellows. Uh a lot of neo-Nazis, you know, in the, the last section we talked about in Russia, in the last volume, when, when I was here at the end of December, they have a strong connection. The, the Russian Orthodox have their own holy war they're fighting against the West. And if you remember back in the Crusades, the big story of the Crusades was not the Christians fighting the Muslims. It was the Eastern Christians fighting the Western Christians. And most of the fighting was the East and the West Christians killing each other. And by the way, they got a little practice on the way of the Crusades by wiping out all the Jews in Germany on the way. And so the Muslims were almost an afterthought when they got there, just simply because they had some real estate they wanted. And so the same thing is going on in this situation, too. But the Russians were closely tied to what we now know as the neo-Nazi movement here, the, the white nationalist movement. And that's why a lot of the guys that were at Charlottesville... Just before that happened, I had been writing about them because they had been in St. Petersburg being trained by the Russian Orthodox Church uh, to do this activity to destabilize the U.S., which was very, very disconcerting in what they're doing in Eastern Europe. So we're you, you talk about entering into a cloud of extraterrestrial debris. We are in a cloud of cultural debris right now in our society, and it's equally hazardous of our own self-immolation before we have any kind of asteroid get here and do it to us. You may not have these numbers, but what is? Are, are there any current estimates on the actual prevalence of the rise of neo-Nazism in, in the U.S.? Of the, of the like the numbers like, like, of neo Nazis, yeah, I mean, and, and to, to 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 paint that term broadly, like how many people are white supremacists, KKK members, and neo Nazis? Are is there any sort of well, estimate on that? You know, it's funny you'd ask me that. I should have that on the tip of my tongue. I don't have it exactly. I think I probably had documented my writing, but I'll give you a couple related numbers. Sure. I was just writing about the people of my 
religious background, the Southern Baptist. Uh-huh. I don't currently attend one, but raised in this part of the country, it's it's there's good odds if you're going to be raised in a Christian home as Southern Baptist, something like it. I was just writing uh, the other day documentation that 14% of all Southern Baptist pastors are Freemasons, which which is a complete uh, huh. rebuttal of of the staunch uh, uh, anti heresy heresy hunter behavior that they have and these kind of things. Uh, going back, to, let's just say the 1920s. Uh, there's one piece of data that comes to mind. 1920s, um, uh, one out. Of, let me see if I get this right. One out of every seven. One out of every seven males in America was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Wow. So, wait, so uh, I'm missing the Freemason white supremacist connection. Well, I was just using this because um, the, the people who are on societies like this, who do things in secret, whose uh, agendas are not quite what they take in a public position like this, right. okay. this is what I'm just starting to uncover with these now, now, some of them are, are like the Freemasons. They, they're more um, uh, syncretic in their beliefs, right? You know, they more pull ever, you know, pull other pieces. Others push other people aside, right? But what 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 you find in common are agendas that aren't fully disclosed, e- either on one or the other. But um, and the other point that I'm making is that when you would think of that, you would think this would be sort of a fringe activity. Things aren't as fringe. Getting accurate data is always the hard thing. But I, I can't give you an exact answer on the neo-Nazis and others. But but I will tell you that, particularly if you look at the alt-right, uh, just uh, you know something that, that caught my eye in writing about some of the major characters of the alt-right, like um, Milos uh, Yiannopoulos. Milo Yiannopoulos. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he's one of the darlings that's a popular media figure in this. <laughs> Who also, I guess he's he's a practicing homosexual, right? I think. I'm, that, I'm not saying that yeah. against him. No, but that doesn't seem to jive with the alt-right well, ethos. Uh, right? He he would declare himself as yeah, a the, the alt-right. Yeah, the alt-right loves him, though. And it's, he's, yeah, he's a product, of, product of Breitbart. I mean, uh, Steve Bannon was one really pressed him forward. What I'm getting at is that the religious right has been pulled into their circles to support, even though they're so staunchly anti-homosexual, and obviously he's a practicing homosexual, they are willing, just like when they overlook Donald Trump's proclivity, you know, the uh, uh, Stormy right. Daniels right. types and things. These bedfellows <laughs> that have gotten together. I'm so glad found, Stormy Daniels was mentioned on the 200th episode of Conspiracy. But what they do is <laughs> they push aside what they say are their deeply held beliefs. And they, if they can find some part of darkness and another person matches their own darkness, they find immediate alliance. Yeah, no, uh, that makes sense. Because but but the, what I was getting to on this just uh, uh, yeah, sure. thing, talking about Steve Bannon and uh, Nilos and these other guys and the the people who've been funding them, the people who've been funding them are the Bradley family and the other foundations that have been mostly doing the most conservative right-wing as far as like conservative evangelical right-wing kind of writing and, and things like this. And I was just ri- reading about him going to the Cannes Film Festival. Steve Bannon sent Milos there. You know, he's a major firebrand. He gets people stirred up. And he was on the Bradley family yacht in Cannes. And it, it turns out he was writing the main guy he was hanging out with it being this really audacious, uh, you know, firebrand that he is, um, on board, uh, deck with being interviewed and hanging out, his dream buddy was Robertson from Duck Dynasty, hmm. who again would be the darling of the, um, you know, uh, 
Value Voter Summit and things like this, right. that, you know, a lot of your Christian films. And I, and I say this as a person of faith. What, what I'm saying is we're getting into bizarre areas of relationships <laughs> that you really have to invest the time to start peeling back the onion to find out who's really aligned with who and what's going on. And, and again, I, I seem to see whatever darkest elements certain people have, they look for the darkest elements in others, and they set aside whatever their individual noble pursuits were and combined in whatever school. It's like, like the guys who, who got together to kill Jesus. You know, right. all of those, whether it was the Romans or the Sanhedrin or whatever, they probably had a few noble activities and things they did, but what drew them together was their darkness of getting rid of a guy that convicted them of their shortcomings. But it's always been like that on both sides of the spectrum, right? I mean, like, you look at Harvey Weinstein, was, who was a darling of the left for a long mm-hmm. time. He had a lot of, you know, an absolute, by all accounts, monster a, of a human being who was, who, yeah. was, who was, like, connected to the highest echelons and espoused the most, you know, right. liberal worldviews, right? Well, and, and I think he's getting, you know, it's come home to yeah, roost, you know? Exactly, yeah. But, but I would say his was purely probably fleshly driven. It wasn't ideologically driven, per se. I'm mm. worried about people who are ideologically driven that are willing to pit us against each other. You know, it seemed like Weinstein was more uh, concerned about what skirt he was chasing around his desk. Right. Uh, th- these are, and, and I'm not, I'm not excusing that. All I'm just saying is, is that I'm worried about people that are willing to bring fire on our heads uh, to, to prove some kind of point uh, for something Fair that enough. they're doing. So, yeah, that's a good point. But it's certainly not to excuse that you know the people that that you're mentioning mm-hmm. and their behavior. Let's talk about you guys, all three of you, on this one. I know you all work on this, but Luke, how's your book coming, man? <laughs> Well, you know, <laughs> it's a book on Stormy Daniels. That's how his eyes perk up over there. He said Stormy Daniels, and I was like, "Are you waiting more about Stormy? You waiting for the academic peer review process to be finished for the journals? Not exactly. I started my book about two years ago, and I'm still on the first chapter. That means because it must be extremely complex. It is, yeah. And, be, and because of the high standards you have academically, that's why you're having to take the time for yeah, the research, it, right? Yeah. It would be a little hard for you guys to understand, so I'm not going to try to explain or summarize. You, you don't know. want us to make us feel stupid. Just, yeah, just wait yeah. till it comes out. So, Randall, first with you, um, big thing that I'm interested in as it relates to your work is kind of like the role of these secret societies. Is there a knowledge that they are preserving about some of these events that may have happened in the distant past? Um, be a little more specific. Oh, well, okay, the comet impact, the existence yeah. of an antediluvian world, for lack of a better term. Oh, yeah, I think that's a big part of hey, a lot of the... Before you answer that, I want you to think about something, you and Adam. Realize that the current planets, exoplanets we have found that are nearest our solar system have probably been receiving conspiranormal for about three years. <laughs> so this has sort of an exoplanet effect. So be careful in your choice of words. Gotcha. That's all I'm saying. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> I always keep the cosmic factor foremost in my mind when I'm discussing these things. Even good. even the most mundane subjects, I try to realize that someday some higher being is going to be tuning in and they could be sitting here amongst us. We don't know. You know. <clears throat> well, Joe is here, so he's a higher being. They're listening. 
<laughs> Don't speak directly to him. I didn't mean to interrupt him. Sorry Not for sorry. my foolishness. I'm still trying to get the gist of his question. Okay. Remember when we were, I don't know if you remember this or not, but we were in Minneapolis. Yes. Uh, where we met you. Yes. We were in the Templar Lodge. Yes, we were, weren't we? Yep. What? And you were showing us this, you were I, showing us this little, it's like a little tableau that had all these different um, Freemasonic images on it. Yes, I did that, didn't I? And there was one that had a picture, <laughs> there was a picture of a comet. And, or like a star, or like a falling star, really. And and at the time that I showed you that, yeah, right. And then you vowed that you would never speak Uh-oh. of it again. Remember? <laughs> Did you forget that part? Yeah. I think I might have. What oh. about when you? What That's about when you put that. those compass points up to your chest? You don't remember that? Rolled your pant leg? Yeah, yeah. Do you remember the goat? I don't remember the goat. No, no, no. No, I think that was after you had already passed out. Yeah, that's true. saw it from behind anyway. (laughs) It was that Capricorn rising thing. Hey, I got something on on this topic about earlier activities. I was just at a birthday party on the way here, which is part of the reason why I was late. And I I gave the person who used to be my co-host on Future Quake, I gave him a book, The Complete Works of George Pember. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Mm. Um, This is a topic you may be interested in. Um, He's my favorite theologian ever. Wrote in the mid-19th century. He was about 150 years ahead of his time on everything that he wrote. His most famous book is called Earth's Earliest Ages. Mm. He wrote the boldest theories about the geological record. Now, this is a theologian writing, mm-hmm. okay, conservative theologian. A lot of the founders of geology were theologians. Right. Yes. Well, he was responding to the age of Darwinism that was coming and the crisis within the religious community about these records and fossils and what was going on. He was really, in effect, the originator, popularizer of what's called the gap theory. And the gap theory, I don't know if you're familiar with it, uh, is a belief that between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 mm. records a cataclysmic ef- effect that happened in whatever was living on earth at the time. Mm-hmm. And there were hints in the Holy Writ that suggested that there were civilizations that were here that were subsequently destroyed. And, and he posited that possibly some of the fossil records and things were of that earlier civilization and also some kind of distortion that may have happened because of their league with you know, I hate to say less than stellar forces, accuse the pun, but that there were uh, things that happened that would have justified this record that occurred. But he talked about basically a civilization kill that happened from outside as part of it. So I wasn't sure if you were familiar what, with that. Give me the name again. Uh, it, it, the book's I'll called Earth's Earliest Ages by Earth? George Pember. George Pember. G.H. Pember, right. Okay. P-E-M-B-E-R, and it's called The Gap Theory. And this gap theory is not just some flake idea by a handful of people. Some of the most famous theologians, even of the 20th century, who are well-known, people don't know they espouse the gap theory. Uh-huh. And and it actually is one of the only ways to explain some of the, the most mysterious passages in the Hebrew Scriptures was, in fact, it actually normalizes these stories that there was a mm-hmm. pre-existent civilization that was wiped out. Right. Just didn't know if that had ever come up in your uh, analysis that, of Yes, my reading of Genesis has led me to almost a very similar scenario in that, you know, when I look at, you know, I've tried to go into the original Hebrew to try to really understand, and I'm still 
learning to understand that language and how the words that were translated, you know, in the 1600s out of Hebrew into English um, and how they would have um, been affected by the understanding and the language available at that time. But still, a lot of things come through that suggest there's a whole lot more behind the scenes than what's actually being expressed right. in, in, in the verses, right? What did Yahweh say to Adam? Be fruitful and multiply, which in the, the chapter in the book I'm writing now, the last chapter I've been writing, has to do with the scientific evidence for a crash in human population. We were just talking earlier mm-hmm. about the disappearance of the Clovis culture. Right. And the gap. The mm-hmm. gap between the Clovis culture and the Folsom culture, which came 600, 800 years later. But in between, you have active cultural sites, you have active quarries, you have radiocarbon dating of, of the, the, the refuge of cultural activity, and then a gap, nothing. And then for, and, and right at that gap, at the beginning of that gap, you've got a major spike in oxygen isotope ratios in the Greenland ice cores that shows that there was a major climate shift. These two papers that have just come out that we, that, that thing you were referencing, right. basically is the documentation that at that same geological horizon precisely, there's a global layer of charcoal that suggests massive firestorms on a huge, huge scale, right? Also at that layer, and and you can see this layer like at Blackwater Draw, the original Clovis site. You can see it at Murray Springs. You can see it a lot of the Clovis sites. There's a layer of material from anywhere from an inch to four or five inches thick. It's dark because it's loaded with carbon, and it separates the Pleistocene epoch from the Holocene epoch. Pleistocene being characterized by the presence of these gigantic ice sheets over North America and Northwestern Europe, characterized by the prevalence of these gigantic megafauna, the woolly rhinos, the the giant Irish elk, the the dire wolves, the saber-toothed cats, the ground sloths, on and on and on. The sudden disappearance. Now, what drew the attention of investigators to this particular layer that they call the black mat is that below it, you would find uh, Clovis cultural artifacts, but not above it. Below it, you would find the remains of the extinct megafauna, but not above it. The most interesting thing was when, in 2007, when Richard Firestone and his colleagues looked at the base of that black mat layer and discovered nanodiamonds. And since then, these nanodiamonds have been confirmed at multiple sites, and apparently... Large swaths of the Earth's surface were just rained upon by billions of these nanodiamonds that now sit, reside at the bottom of that layer, right? So this is a really unique horizon, culturally, geologically, but also it bears the signature of some kind of a cosmic event, right? So you've got this gap there. That's and, And so what I've been writing about in this chapter that I'm working on now is we can be go much beyond North America, and we can show in, in Northwestern Europe, we can show in Japan, we can show in the Mideast, that there were major cultural disruptions that coincided with this. In some cases, the total vacating of large areas, geographic areas, right? Now, getting back to Scripture, getting back to Genesis, be fruitful and multiply. 
would be the mandate upon survivors of a global catastrophe, Mm -hmm. where the human population is hovering on the threshold of extinction, (laughs) just like 120 other megafaunal species, which we are a megafaunal species, right? So be fruitful and multiply. But then think about the next word, Mm -hmm. replenish the earth, replenish the earth and subdue it which is really interesting because mm-hmm. what I think that's pointing to is not, no, here's, here's unlimited license to go out and desecrate nature to any extent you want. It's often been interpreted by critics as giving license, right? Right. I don't think that. I think that it's the recognition that periodically Earth itself is subject to these catastrophic upheavals <clears throat> that can completely rearrange the balance of nature. And re- completely rearrange, remodel the global environment. And that perhaps we humans are the one species out of all of God's species on this planet that could actually intervene in that process. And In fact, the words that were used for that, <clears throat> the reason man was created to, was to tend the garden. To tend the garden, see. And that's, that's what you're talking about is tending the garden. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, if we would maintain our focus on what we were created to do, this would be a much greater garden. Well, this is why I think that ultimately, I think life on this planet came from out there. We could get into the idea of, you know, you can talk about God and the creator, and it can be a totally supernatural phenomena that's completely outside human consciousness or comprehension, I'll say, or human understanding, or we could realize we are endowed with brains and the reasoning power by our creator that will allow us to scientifically understand, at least on some level, the process by which life came to this planet and by which life has evolved. See, I don't, for me, creationism, creation account, evolution, I don't see those as contradictory because I see evolution as being a divinely guided process. Mm -hmm. So in that context, um, I don't see a conflict between those two particular views. Um, sure. But on the other hand, if we look at what, what I've seen now is that life has been struggling on this planet. It's almost like the idea of the garden. Earth is a cosmic garden, but it keeps getting invaded and it keeps getting catastrophically destroyed. And the the whole program gets reset. And at some point... <laughs> it's like, I, I, you know, I look at that like the curse, you know, the curse that came upon the earth with the spilling of the blood that replayed itself during the, mm-hmm. the flood of Noah. Mm. So you had the spilling of the blood with the, the, the slaying of, of, of Abel by Cain. You had the, the spilling of the waters that destroyed life on earth, which I think now has a geological reality to it that we can actually say, yes, there were great floods. Yeah. Now, not necessarily a flood that drowns the whole earth to the top of Mount Everest, but floods that were on such a scale that they would wipe out the world as people would know it at the time. You know, so in the aftermath of some of these events, survivors of one of these gigantic mega floods that I've been studying and researching in the field now for 25 years is that. If you were lucky enough to survive, you could look around you and everything that you knew is gone. Mm-hmm. And you don't know who else has survived. You have no way of communicating with anybody who may have survived 500 or 1,000 miles away. So as far as you know, the world is destroyed and you're starting over. Yeah. But at some point, I think that 
it's the mandate of the, the divine intelligence of life, terrestrial life, and whatever its source, that it wants to transcend the cyclical curse of destructions mm -hmm. and repetitions. Mm -hmm. And we humans could very well be the agency by which the, the mandates of nature mm -hmm. achieve that goal. Well, I, I would believe from a traditional uh, Christian or even Judeo-Christian viewpoint of those scriptures you're pointing out, what you have said is completely orthodox. Uh, and in fact, I, I would say you, you could see that the only, um, to me, the only critical part in that creation story you're talking about, like what's not sacred of, of the traditional view that we hang to, is that the clear message to be derived from it was that Man had a special purpose. Mm -hmm. It was not an accident, a material accident. <clears throat> it was created without meaning. The only story that, the only part of that we need to be literalistic about is that man had a purpose, and it was not because he was superior because of the role he had in creation, was that his duties were higher than everything else in creation. The duty was to be the caretaker of the creation. And it is a heavy duty in crown to wear to do that. And, and it's clear in there, in fact, when you take the story at its face value, the, the first prophecy that's in Scripture where it talks about after the fall and God comes and approaches the serpent and the woman, that first prophecy called the Proto-Evangelion, it is a clear saying that mankind will prevail. He will crush the head of the serpent that tries to destroy not because of mankind's power, but because of what mankind was created to do. See, I, the rest of the story of the narrative is an affirmative of that, and that the garden will be restored, but it will be a super garden that's restored. And see, when you say the serpent, of course, I brings to my mind the, the universality, the ubiquity of the serpent motif in so many traditions. And when you say crush the head of the serpent, one of the things that I see is that that's a literal metaphor for the serpent is repeatedly the the comets mm -hmm. Re repeatedly you see traditions mm -hmm. depicting comets as serpents in the sky even mm -hmm. the point where you see medieval manuscripts cometa in latin and you've got this dragon up there titled the latin for comet right but the last book of the bible which is the apocalypse, apocalypse. to wrap it all up yes is a story of things coming from the sky absolutely leading to yes. man's demise where it says their hearts fail them for fear of what they see coming on the earth but also the, the dichotomy of the serpent bringing being a, a force to be feared in terms of being venomous and a mm -hmm. force of knowledge in a lot of global cultures can be sort of seen if you look at the serpent as an asteroid or extraterrestrial body impacting Earth can be seen as that sort of like life giver, life knowledge bringer, um, life destroyer sort of dichotomy. I would I would think at least. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, there I think there is a, 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 an ambiguity to that whole that whole symbol of the serpent. Well, um, I, I think the message there is knowledge without wisdom is dangerous. I yeah, I like that. Man, yeah. man mm -hmm. has a natural curiosity from his very first man to each of us here. What we're expressing is a curiosity about knowledge. Yeah. We all would like to know where we want to stick our nose and stuff beyond what we're reading in well, newspapers. And if we can't, we don't have wisdom hand in hand with us. Mm -hmm. It's like walking down a blind alley because we're just curious what's down at the end of well, it. Well, knowledge without wisdom is at least 15 to 30, maybe 15 to like 45. <laughs> you, know? you get a little license, you mean, yeah. on the age for that. Yeah. Wisdom has to catch up a little bit. All right. I was thinking about 15 to 65. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Let's do this. It's about 7.30. So I'm going to turn it over for anybody that wants to ask questions. 
We gotta get that mic over there. So let's Mike. do about like let's do about Hi, 30, 30, 35 minutes. Okay, uh, I'm gonna start with Joshua. Um, as far as the the cryptozoological stuff, I wanted to ask you because I hadn't found any information yet where you were talking about this. But what do you think the role or implications of some of these? Uh, I guess you'd call them imitative cults that are in some of these traditional societies, like to the berserkers in the Norse Germanic mm. stuff, where they take on these mm-hmm. roles of these cryptozoological creatures, or the skinwalkers and the Dene people in the Southwest. What are what's your take on some of that and how it relates? It's a really good question. Um, to me, like I have just enough um, of a sort of you know anomalous in me to think that there's something to these stories but just enough of a skeptic to think that there's not a literal trans sort of transformation um if you look at like you know sort of like something that pops immediately into mind is like the idea that like amazonian shamans would in would take on ayahuasca and would sort of become the jaguar or or could become the jaguar at will um Mm -hmm. i don't think that literally means that they actually transformed into a jaguar um I think then it's it's part of part and parcel with what you see in a lot of shamanic cultures. Um, some cultures use this to the tribes. Well, they would all use it to the tribe's benefit, but some would use it for destructive or productive processes. I would imagine that the berserker thing, the berserker thing, might be literally just completely entirely rooted in like. Or well, 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 or a hallucinogenic frenzy, like a frenzied sort of thing. When I think about like um, the more peaceful applications of that, um, I think that it possibly has a lot more to do with like where are the herds going? Where should we hunt? You know, do we have permission from certain spirits of the land to to, inter- to interface with that sort of thing? Um, the idea of an actual like physical transformation is is a bridge too far for me you know um but i don't think that the idea that certain consciousnesses could interact is 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 out of the question um so i would i would wonder you know there's this great like some people talk about what separates you know an anomalist from a fortean and there's this great story that uh was related back in uh I believe it was like the seventies the, the or eighties where there was like a cat and I'm probably butchering the story, but there was a cat that like was in a crowd and turned around and said, look at that and walked away. A 14 will find that interesting. You know, someone who is interested in like the weird sciencey thing will not find that interesting, but the 14 will find that interesting because of what it says about culture, about what it says about, you know, um, about what it says about, um, about the way that we interpret weird things. Um, I think that a lot of, a lot of the stuff that we find in terms of, of, of these sort of like transformative cults, um, might have a lot more, might sit in that sort of space. Um, it might be a lot more about like, this is just sort of a, a stranger thing that happens that, uh, might have some relevance on, 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 on the way that we perceive the world, but might not. That's not entirely eloquent. As far as kind of like a chicken and the egg thing. Yeah. I mean, some of this, maybe some of this stuff is coming from uh, what 
people were actually doing first and a lot of the lore is coming from things that maybe people are initiating or people right. are trying to uh, emulate preachers they actually well, saw. Well, it's, it's, I, I think it's sort of co-creative, too, yeah. at, the, at that point. You know, I mean, like, so... Uh, how 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 much is how much of it is the fact that the berserker is wearing the uh, the skin of a bear and has you know bear claw brass knuckles for lack of a better term and how much of it is the fact that you are aware that there's going to be a berserker coming for you wearing all that and you know wh- where does that line sort of blur um, I do think that there is a that there is a uh, a blending of um, that there is a <laughs> A blending of consciousnesses, um, and that that's an entirely possible uh, scenario, um, because you know if if you look at like again coming back to like so the wear jaguar cults, um, you'll find that people who have no experience in the Amazon jungle um, will take something like ayahuasca, which is closely associated with you know the the Benisiriopsis capi and 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 the the vine and the fact that you know jaguars will actually like consume that vine. In addition, with the uh, uh, the other leaf that uh, actually acts as an MAO inhibitor, um, you'll find the people that take that particular brew in certain settings will actually experience visions of jaguars. Will actually experience those. You know, I think there was a study that was uh, done uh, that actually uh, they they gave uh, ayahuasca to Inuits who still experienced visions of spotted cats. Um, really despite despite the <laughs> fact that they had never been you know never even seen a spot of cat yeah uh, have you have you done any uh i hadn't found any information where you did any research on like the southwestern american stuff as far as like the skinwalkers and those types of that's a little bit of a blind spot for me you know um part part of it honestly like you know i'm a little bit of a a little bit of a chicken shit about that <laughs> <laughs> because you know it's the the, the skinwalker mythos is so sort it's of scary. Intimi- I'm from Arizona. So it's intimidating. Scary. It's very intimidating. Um, but uh, if um, I think that there is sort of a, I think that there's sort of a uh, that that threads a line between um, reality and this sort of alternate reality that uh, that touches upon a lot of things we talked about. You know, there's not a strong tradition of like where things in Celtic lore, which is sort of my, my speciality. Um, but at the same time, I feel like, um, there is, there is a certain, um, mouthfeel of realism to a lot of those skinwalker stories that I, I completely, I completely buy into. Um, you know, the danger is that you just assume that, uh, you know, it's a, it's an old culture, so therefore it must be true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which you, you sort of sort of got to you know sort of do a gut check and be aware of that. Um, but uh, I think that uh, the act of I would suspect rather the act of engaging with things on that sort of spiritual level might possibly open a fissure for lar- larger or more more dramatic events to happen. Um, a lot of the stuff at the, you know, the Sherman ranch, which is, yeah. Cool. That was real good. I got a, uh, and for, uh, for Randall Carlson, um, I was reading and, and hearing some interviews where you were talking about kind of going back to same chicken, the egg kind of thing like you guys referenced earlier. 
are some of these places embedded with power, therefore people begin to build things on them? Or is the, uh, the process of humans building these things and doing these certain things at these places, creating power in these places? But uh, I had also heard you talk about uh, possible ancient technology that's forgotten as to... Uh, I wanted to ask if you had any kind of speculation that you'd like to share as to what exactly some of this technology might be of these uh, of these temples, of these sacred mounds, things like this, what they actually might have hoped to accomplish or any speculation. Well, if I had on. to come down on uh, any side of it, I would say that the that the special properties were intrinsic, that they were there. Um very sensitive humans could have detected that there's a special quality, a special energy about certain places. And I think that <clears throat> science is, is moving in the direction of being able to, to um, objectify that and, and demonstrate that there is actually measurable and quantifiable differences in the energy fields that we're constantly surrounded by. But, you know, the work I did a, um, oh, five or six years ago, I don't even remember on which podcast I I uh, was a guest along with Paul Devereaux, who has written, um, done a lot of research, geomantic research around the British Isles, and looking at the geological component of the sighting of a lot of the ancient stone and megalithic structures, and discovered that they were clustered along fault lines. And was that you that said, no, somebody talking about the Oracle of Delphi. I did, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Oracle of Delphi being at the intersection of, of two of the largest fault lines in, in the Greek Peninsula. Um, and so the idea that there could be some natural forces that could alter human consciousness in some effect. Well, there that's the fumes, supposedly, that mm -hmm. they would waft up. They would hold right, the, the fumes the emanating from the crevasse. Right. And there could be multiple uh, agents at work here. One that was mentioned um, out of research going back as early as this was the, that the hippocampus region of the brain can be actually affected by... Uh, changes in the geomagnetic field, ionization of the atmosphere that can occur um, under intense stresses that are set up in the Earth's crust. And you know, when an earthquake happens, what you have is a sudden release of, of stress that has built up on a fault line. But in, in you know, things like um, um, lumina luminosities in the atmosphere, people hearing booming sounds, things like this prior to and sometimes even after an earthquake, uh, the fact that animals are somehow sensing that something is about to happen. Um, the idea here, I think, is that you also have stresses that are constantly accumulating and dissipating in the crust of the earth, oftentimes without actually, without breaking the fault, without actually, and, and so it's like we live on this, the surface of this immense ball of material here um this little thin rocky crust over this huge molten material and there are tremendous forces at play and i think particularly earlier humans who lived in nature all their life were probably uh, undoubtedly more sensitive to these forces i became convinced of the reality of of force fields back in i think it was 1975 I was building a pole barn along the Chattahoochee River in, in Georgia. And I designed the barn. The, the, the owner of the property said, well, he had access to telephone poles and could I use those somehow to, to build him a barn, right? So he had 15 of them. So what I did was I plotted out 
three rows of five each, right? And they were maybe 25 feet apart and maybe 40 feet long, the three rows, right? I then called up Ma Bell, the phone company in Georgia, and inquired as to how much it would cost to get their driver out with an auger truck to dig the holes and set the poles for me. And they said, well, $15 a pole. And I said, let's do it. All right. So a few days later, I have in the in the ground there, I've cleared off and leveled. I have stakes. I've driven every place I want a, a pole to be set. And these are basically refurbished or re- reconstituted telephone poles, right? The truck pulls up. There's a driver. There's actually two guys uh, in the front seat of the truck with this big auger truck. And then there's a back door on it. And they pull up. And the two guys that are in the Ma Bell uniforms, this fellow gets out of the back seat. And he's a tall, skinny guy. He must have been 6'5", six, 6'6". Six, six. An old crumpled hat, overalls, cover overalls, yeah, because he had the, the straps. Really almost like a stereotypical type of character. And he's carrying something that looked like a violin case. And he gets out, and he comes walking down, and he opens it up, and he takes out... Dowsing rods. Dowsing rods. Mm-hmm. So... He's got these dowsing rods, and really all they are is the old-fashioned telescoping uh, automobile antennas with the ball at the end. It's it's about the the user more than the actual I think so, yeah. Yeah. So he gets those out, and he goes with them. And and my first reaction was I'd heard of water witching, but I I didn't know anything about it, really, other than I'd certainly never seen anybody in action, a dowser. So my first reaction was wait a minute these guys are pulling my leg you know they're but so he goes walking over each of the stakes and as he walks over you know he he, these his his rods are just kind of like this you know he go over each one and then as he passed over it he would shout up to the guys in the truck clear clear and he did that all 15 of them right so now where the where i was going to build the barn and where the house was the road that came into the property was there. The water line, the water main that came in from the from the road, the, the gravel road out at the edge of the property, came in under the driveway, right? He goes walking, and he walks across the driveway. And I, I knew vaguely that it was under the driveway, but I didn't know exactly where. He walks over, and I'm watching him this whole time. I'm still like, I guess this is for real, right? He gets over this spot, and I swear it was like somebody grabbed the ends of these things, pulled them into an X, and they were actually bending, like bending, like this. Wow. And then he stepped over, and as he stepped across, they relaxed and went back to this, like this. And And then what he did is he walked in a zigzag pattern, and he was able to trace out the exactly where the water line goes. And the owner came out and goes, yeah, that's where it is. So and, and I'm standing and watching this whole. I'm, I've been overworking. I'm building while I'm waiting for them to do this. I was overbuilding a garage, right? So this whole time I'm standing there, you know, probably just holding my hammer in my hand, watching this. And he, and he looks at me. He goes, "You want to try it?" Well, and, and what you described is not explicable by like user user malfunction. Right. Like if it's actually like bending like that close, it was that tight, it was almost like shocking. Yeah, but yeah, it's not. But. I kind of sheepishly and self-consciously said, sure. Right, right. You know, I took them like, mm, these guys are watching me, you know, and okay. And I stepped across and it was like I got an electric shock. 
and I could feel, I mean, it felt like somebody grabbed the ends of those rods and were holding them. And then I stepped across, and I was able to do it. And I've tried many times since then, and I've gotten a mild response, but never anything near that first right. time. Hmm. Um, and it might have been, I don't know, I've often thought, well, was it the, his presence there? Was it because I was in a state of mind of complete innocence, not expecting anything or projecting anything that I had such that strong response? But after that, I became convinced. And then, of course, I had uh, a lot of friends of mine that served in Vietnam because I'm of that generation. And I had uh, one friend of mine who was in the Marines who told me that they used dowsers over there to find mines. And I thought, well, now, you know, if if if, if they're doing that <laughs> yeah. and they're actually finding mines, there's got to be something to it. Because, you know, if, if it's just, you know, random, you know, 50 percent chance or whatever, just random statistic chance. But it's a matter of life and death. You'd run out of people to do it yeah. <laughs> if it was just uh, random. Yeah, Right, right. So well, and, and, and millionaires don't believe in Australia, uh, astrology or, or, or woo billionaires do, you know, like it's, it's the people who the people in power actually like acknowledge the power of this stuff. Which right. is a shame so why they that. don't have long antennas like that on the front of Humvees to catch IEDs before they drive over them. They could see them cross in front right. of them. But to get back to your question, I think that that Paul Devereaux was onto something, that he saw that they were placing these megalithic structures and correlating them with fault lines. Um, the work of, of uh, what was his name again? Persinger. Persinger. Yeah. Pers- uh, yeah. And his, I forget what was his partner that wrote the book. Uh, <clears throat> Space-Time Transients and Unusual Events. Mm-hmm. They wrote it in the 70s, and it was a statistical analysis of all of these strange anomalous Fordian type events and they plotted them on a map of North America and then saw showed that there was a correlation between the underlying geological structures and these events for example there was a huge concentration of events in southern Illinois which is right there associated with the um, the um, the fault or right. the, um, the New Madrid fault zone right so it was these kind of correlations and then shortly after that, that's when I discovered the work of Paul Devereaux, and he was basically yeah. coming up with the idea that, that many of the this ancient sites in Britain. Then I came across the work of Guy Underwood, who wrote the book called The Pattern of the Past, and he was a, a geomancer, dowser, who spent years studying the placing of sacred sites in Europe that could have ranged anywhere from a megalithic stone up to a cathedral. And one of the things that he reported was, and, and to the extent I've been able to find geological confirmation, he was right, showing that under all of the major cathedrals, there is a crossing of under, underground streams. And then, which brings us back to the conversation we were having today yeah. with some of these, some of the, um, you know, fringe work of people like, like Wilhelm Reich, who was working with his, his orgone energy and discovering that certain means, uh, they were able to concentrate. Um, the orgone energy using accumulators, they were able to control. He was able to control it and manipulate it uh, by means of his his uh, cloud busters. He called them um, all, which which worked by the way only when they were grounded into flowing water. That was the key to making them work. If you set up an orgone accumulator and you didn't have it grounded, and he used a, a heavy BX cable leading off of the end of his of his cloud buster that led into he would put it into a deep well or put it into a river and then it would work and if it wasn't 
into the water, it was like the circuit didn't close, right? So he discovered that he could actually manipulate the weather using that and, and change wind directions and atmospheric patterns and pressure. Um, and I think that very possibly, then when you look at his the structure of his orogone accumulators, the layering effect was what he claimed was responsible for this concentration, even to the point where looking through a, a lens into the thing, you could see a, 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 many, many people saw this. You could look in and there would be like a blue light mm -hmm. inside the accumulators. Well, when you look at the structures of the ancient uh, monumental earthworks, they're exactly that. They're, they're reveted layers of organic and inorganic material. They're placed above or adjacent to flowing water. To me, all of that is highly suggestive that they were somehow manipulating or controlling and and i think that the question you ask is that that the the energy was there that the unique property or quality was there the structures served as amplifying mm -hmm. um systems ways of of uh, instruments amplifying instruments that could concentrate and i think that's the whole basis of the hermetic art the the alchemical science which is the fusion of that which is above which that is below and i think that's ultimately the basis of early christianity about this linking of heaven and earth in addition to some consciousness change as well oh of course that goes humans. right along with yeah. it and you'll find this amplification mm -hmm. motif in a lot of other structures like uh, certain structures that are designed to be acoustically amplified where a whisper will turn into or certain frequencies often with you know in, in paul Devereaux's yeah. work the male voice the male voice register will actually resonate with the structure in a certain way that actually has possibly a consciousness you know altering effect Mm -hmm. You see, the, the, the sacred structures are always built with sacred geometry. So what that means is, is that, like, one of the interesting things is when you look at the Gothic cathedrals that were built between about 1130 and about 1300, during that amazing period, that epoch of, of these building these grand monuments, they're repositories of sacred geometry, of astronomy, of symbolism. Um, they're very universal in their in their preservation of of knowledge but when you go in there and you realize that they're all built according each each cathedral is built according to its own module right so each each cathedral the master builder would have his 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 measuring stick all right his his cubit stick that was the basis and everything was generated from that right as it turns out the yardstick for each cathedral is adjusted according to its position on the surface of the earth because as you move north or south your distance from the center of mass of the earth changes the curvature of the earth changes the lines of latitude and longitude shift oh, right? the earth is flat so randall that's not <laughs> oh okay right. so okay so okay that's so been, i get, I get that's it been so 40 years of research is just you've just <laughs> It's yeah. down the toilet. Okay. That's what the yeah. rapper B.O.B. told me. Never mind. Told me that. The earth is Say flat. Just a, but but it, saying it was round, how would you continue? <laughs> okay. Well, that's the idea. The idea I'm getting at is there was a standard, a module of each cathedral, and it was linked to its latitude on the earth, which, which I've gone into pretty much five or six cathedrals analyzing the data from architectural analysis and dimensional analysis and being able to show that. Then at the same time, they're also like a chart cathedral. 
it's built over the confluence of underground water. <laughs> and if you go down into the crypt under Shark, there's a deep well, and you go to the bottom of the well, and, and, and it's right into the water table. And the interesting thing is, is when you're standing on the paving floor in the, in the, um, in the nave of the cathedral, the water table, the depth of the water table, which f does fluctuate a little bit, but overall the depth of the water table is the same distance below the floor as the height of the Ogival vault is above the floor. And when you look at the the um, the pillars that go up into the into the Ogive, and the Ogive, you have to understand, is a very remarkable structural innovation in that. Um, I don't have anything here. I wish I had a... What's this right here? Okay. I don't know Chopstick? Yeah. Is that, okay. is, is that incense? I don't know. It's just a little piece of wood. <laughs> so usually if I demonstrate this, I would get like a wooden rule or something. But yeah. basically, here's the idea. Up until the invention of the Gothic vault, virtually all structural forces were compressive. So if you look at typical... Um, Romanesque mm -hmm. architecture, going back to Greek architecture, to Egyptian, they all relied on big, heavy, squat, very compressive structural elements. When you get to the Gothic cathedral in the vault, what happens is you've, you've got the pillars coming up, and the pillars are, are truncated at various stages at which are harmonically related, according to certain geometric square root of two, square root of three, which are these harmonic numbers, and then you get to the to the vault itself. The mortar that they used was as stronger than the stone they used. So when they when they laid up, the, the carpenters would come in and they would build this incredible formwork of timber, and then the masons would come in and lay up the stonework. Right after it had set up, the master builder would go and stand under the false work or the scaffolding work when they took it out to show his confidence that the vault which is you know thousands of tons of stone you know 150 180 feet up in the air right that his confidence is not going to collapse on him and crush it crush him but here's the thing when you look at it, you realize that the stone of the vault acts as a as a single element right and whereas most architectural forces up till that time have been purely compressive right Want to want to shorten the, the fibers of a material? The Gothic, the stones in Gothic vault are under tension, right? So uh. it's it's almost like they're bent like this. And and if you know what a, if you know what a flying buttress is, the flying buttress comes in from the side and holds yeah. the stresses in laterally, because if you were to instantly somehow instantly remove the flying buttress, the vault would do this. It would spring up. That's what it wants to do. And so what they've done is they've created a, a structural system that is almost like almost like an instrument that's been tuned. And they've created this harmonically shaped and sized vault where every, all of these forces can be amplified. So I think well, the answer to fact, your question I is... Think, I think the, what you are resembling there is a tuning fork. A tuning fork. Thank you. Yes. Thanks. Perfect. Perfect analogy. Yes. A tuning fork. And each cathedral will vibrate at a slightly different tune. And that tune has now been harmonically correlated with its position on the earth. And what Guy Underwood discovered and documented in Pattern of the Past is all these cathedrals are linked 
by this network of underground flowing water. And what was even further interesting to me is that one of the things that, uh, that uh, Louis Charpentier, who was a French researcher who wrote on Chart Cathedral, he showed how all of the Notre Dame cathedrals that are dedicated to the Virgin, right, if you actually plot them out on the landscape, and it's Notre Dame, it's St. Denis, it's Chartres, it's Léon, it's Reims, it's Amiens. There's eight of them, if I remember right. If you plot them out, it creates almost a perfect effigy of the constellation of the, of the Virgin, yes. Virgo. Now, that to me raises some really, really interesting questions, because on the one hand, an astronomer can look at some of these ancient structures and say, oh, the, the basis for designing these things was astronomical. But now a geologist can look at them and go, oh, well, the basis of, of these structures was geological, you know, well, or the basis of this was was the pattern of energy in the landscape. Well, I think it was all of these things. But here's the thing. If if each of those cathedrals is placed on a location, a naturally occurring location where there are underground springs or confluence of underground water courses. Right. And. And those particular sites, if they pre-existed the cathedrals, they were geological phenomena imprinted in the landscape. They're already there duplicating the constellation of Virgo in the geology of, of Europe. And it, well, well, I more, think if just in my engineer background, what, what I assume this is probably obvious to everybody else, but what I'm thinking the, the moving water would do in a pure physical sense, I'm not talking about supernatural, but physical, is it creates electromagnetic field. Mm -hmm. You basically made a coil, and that's what moving water will do. It'll mm -hmm. create a field like that. And so when you make a coil, you're going to induce forces and a field that would even affect other people. What? Well, I know that when I went to Lourdes, and I, you probably know the story somewhat of Lourdes, right? And the vision of yeah. Bernadette Subaru and how the miracle there was that she had this vision of this, you know, woman in, in, in white and all of this, the queen of heaven there in the grotto where the, the town of Lourdes was using as a garbage dump. And she was told, um, you know, there was a series of visitations and each time there was a visitation, her followers would grow and be, and, and she would come back with these, these messages to, and gave to the local bishop and, Eventually, he uh, wanted to see to test the, the the this divine woman. So he said, "See if you can make this particular type of rose bloom mm -hmm. this month, which was out of season." And she, so she goes. But what happens is that the divine presence then tells her to to d eat the plants and dig in the dirt, right? Which she does, and then everybody thinks she's nuts, right? Well, then shortly after, after everybody's abandoned the site, gone home and left it, what happens is a spring bubbles out of that spot. And I've seen that spring, and it is a copious spring. So it's like something was going on there. It's like that was what, what Guy Underwood referred to as a blind spring, would be a spring that has not actually broken the surface, but is nonder, nonetheless rising under pressure, perhaps artesian pressure. And just the presence of that underground water un, rising under pressure could cause changes in the ambient field that could be detected by a sensitive individual. So it's probable then that that spring obviously was there. And, but 
whatever brought this about, the divine visitation, the, the message to dig, and then the fact that an actual spring did emerge from that spot, that exact spot, is, is, is really quite remarkable. And it's been thoroughly documented. Um, but I got to say, when I was there, I felt something very powerful. And I don't know how to really mm-hmm. put my finger on what it was, but it was a it was right up there with some of the peak experiences of my life that there was this sense. I don't know how to describe it, but it was a very potent experience. And there's a, there's a, they've now built an Abbey over the, the grotto and going in there. I mean, I I couldn't, this, this feeling was just this palpable feeling where you just basically felt like just weeping because it was so intense that would that and people i was watching people come in into this into this um into the um into the sanctuary there and they would walk in and within about 30 seconds they would be crying and and it wasn't i don't think just emotional i think it was something really visceral and physical there was a a sense that was something was happening to your nervous system that was affecting you emotionally Well, well, I mean, almost without exception, a lot of apparitions of the Blessed Virgin Mary have appeared near or at springs. Yeah. Um, and, and they coincide with a lot of like sort of, sort of like, in, you know, again, my interest area, nymphs or sylphs or these sort of like, you know, water elemental spirits sort of areas. Um, but you were talking about like sort of the outlay of, of, of cathedrals mirroring um Celestial events, and it reminds me of what I think it was Robert Bavall described the Giza Plateau as being yeah. a mirror of heaven. Yes, uh, yes, you know, yeah, of Orion. Right, right, right. exactly. It's re- reflective of, of what's happening in the stars, and that sort of really, really reminded me of that. Um, but, but again, like this idea of the water, I, th- I think that again, something we talked about in our conversation, which I wish I'd recorded. <laughs> I wish you could have all been flies on the window of my, my car today. Um, uh, there, there is a strong correlation between something to do with water, um, and 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 the supernatural. Not to get this is this is in the more woo category, which I guess I specialize in. Um, but you know, if if you look at a lot of people who talk about you know anomalous fortean things, <clears throat> they tend to happen near water. UFO sightings are more prevalent mm-hmm. near water. Uh, Bigfoot uh, sightings are more uh, prevalent in river basins or near bodies of running water. Um, a lot of people will talk about hauntings being more common near underground springs. Mm-hmm. And you know something that we sort of I sort of thought about today earlier is like we re- we realize that there is a biological need for water in other words life can't be supported as we know it without water um but what if there is a metaphysical reason for water producing life or producing phenomena what if that's something that isn't equally important well if i could Um, just mention on um from a ancient writing scriptural standpoint there's a connection between water people and visitations from above. Mm. And one case in point is in Revelation chapter 8 when it talks about wormwood, a, mm. a celestial mm-hmm. coming down. I did a, a presentation on this that you've seen about Revelation 8 and actually really looking at what the Greek words are. The word is actually Artemis mm-hmm. uh, there. It is actually a name for Diana mm-hmm. that's being called out or also Hecate. Mm-hmm. Um, who actually has right. keys. Paging keys Walter Bosley. Right. That, that, that actually come down, and it says it comes down on the waters, the hydros, and makes them bitter. 
And the actual waters used in the very next chapter talks about the waters represent people and nations and communities. And it talks about making them, the word for bitters also mean enraged. And the picture is just like when you see with the Dionysus worshipers, they would actually have a visitation and they would basically, like the Menaeids, would be taken over and go crazy. And a third of the people die. But what they, what it appears they're calling down is what we know was, uh, uh, Artemis or Diana calling her down from the sky, visitation of a woman from the sky. It comes on the waters as a metaphor for people and there's a transformative effect. That happens as as a as liminal goddess, but on a more recent situation, when you're talking about ley lines or, or these other sacred geometry, when I got uh, a few years ago the original letters of R.C. Christian, and was able to go in the the vault that built the Georgia Gadstones, mm-hmm. and actually have them in my possession, his original letters, his designation of them was to build them on these particular ley lines that the whole Georgia Gadstone monolith, which was meant to represent the ancient uh, you know, structures with all the astrological mm-hmm. alignments and astronomical and things like that. But but they were designed to be on what the Cherokees called the navel of the world. Mm-hmm. Is where it was, and they ended up having to move it slightly, but then they had to fit it within other ley line geometries because of the requirements of being able to build it and the people who provided it. But that was a key point that they had to find uh, to, to, to harness that energy for, mm-hmm. for whatever purpose. Neophilos. Mm-hmm. The navel of the world. The, right. uh, the, uh, is there a question for Dr. Future as well? Uh, no, I was just trying to tie that in. I think it was good you all got to riff off each other like that. Um, I just wanted to add really quick, too, we were talking about survival of these cataclysmic events uh, that may be coming and strategies and what people may have tried to do in the past. I wanted to know uh, what you all thought about the role of the the mythology of the, the underworld and the role of caves and caverns in, you know, old religions, uh, into the mystery schools, et cetera. Uh, maybe these are some kind of uh, remembrance of... Uh, people hiding out underground to survive these cataclysmic events. Nice. Good question. I think I can address that because like this new research that's coming out that, that the the article that um, Adam quoted from. So there's these two exhaustive papers, which by the way, I I, I have, I was going to print a couple of copies and bring them with of the, of the original papers that have just been published in journal of geology. Um, Basically documenting that there was this mass of firestorms that associated with the termination of the Ice Age. Clearly, surviving a massive firestorm could be enhanced by going underground, no doubt. No doubt. And a lot of the um, or- origination mythology um, talks and, about and it the emergence. Been instinctive. You wouldn't have had to have a lot of education to realize something's hitting on my head. I better go down this yeah. hole. Well, just think about what we've done in our own modern times in terms of trying to come up with a, 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 a strategy for surviving a nuclear war. Bunkers. Bunkers, underground bunkers, right? Cheyenne Mountain. So uh, the kind of event that we would be talking about, like in a Tunguska-type event, um, which basically sets fire to the atmosphere. In the Tunguska atmosphere event, it was 800 and some square miles, which is about the size of any large metropolitan city in in america so you know and and one of the things one of the co-authors uh william napier who actually wrote a very um a uh very uh 
astute letter to uh, the Cosmic Tusk after the last um, interview I did with Joe Rogan and, and, and Graham Hancock. He was a member of the, he's a, a British astronomer who is the member of the Comet Research Group. And we had Malcolm LeCompte on there, who was also a member. And, and I had the opportunity of, of participating in this roundtable discussion with about four of these guys, five of these guys that were co-authors of that paper. So I had three days of where I was able to just basic up everything that they were doing. And um, at this time, you know, they were, the, they were engaged in writing the, the, the papers, um, which have now, they're not published uh, in uh, hard copy yet. They're only available online if you're subscribed to Journal of Geology or you have an academic uh, connection with it. Um, but yeah, so what this is showing is that you may have had, like, and this is where I'm getting at with William Napier's work, along with, with Victor Klub, they are this, referred to themselves as neo, or have been referred to as neo-catastrophists. And their work goes back to the early 80s. That, in fact, the first book that they wrote that I read by them was called The Cosmic Serpent, in which they analyzed all of these ancient myths regarding serpents and dragons and stuff and showed the strong correlation between myths of serpents and dragons and cosmic phenomena, right? So William Napier wrote this um, very laudatory letter to the Cosmic Tusk in the wake of this interview that we did because that interview has had somewhere between 5 and 7 million views. So... Even the guys working in the Comet Research Group acknowledged that that interview that we did on Rogan was probably the greatest publicity that this idea has ever had, right? Um, so William Napier, he wrote a very uh, laudable letter, and it's you could go on to the Cosmic Tusk, you can read it. And and um, but he is the um, uh, or, uh, the the originator of this idea that we may encounter swarms of Tunguska-like events, uh, of uh, Tunguska-like debris, maybe even to the point where you could be talking hundreds or thousands in a swarm from a recently disaggregated cometary nucleus. And what this would mean is the, thing, the key thing to understand about Tunguska is it didn't hit the ground. It blew up in the atmosphere, see? And then it set the atmosphere on fire that was able to consume completely to ashes, about 250 square miles of forest, and then completely flattened because of the, the pressure wave that went out from the blast, completely flattened about 600 more square miles of this old-growth Taiga forest. So in the event of that kind of a, a, a phenomena, yeah, going underground would be a good survival strategy. Um and and to sort of piggyback off that idea, um, my particular reference to this is failing because Soraya uh, Azkath is is not fulfilling his uh, who wants to be a millionaire phone a friend capacity right now. But in a book uh, by Robert Schock, um, there is a reference to uh, artwork that um, has been recorded in certain caves of a of plasma <clears throat> phenomena and all <clears throat> the plasma phenomena depicted in that certain artwork seems to be the sort of plasma phenomena that you could watch while not being lethal and the plasma phenomena that is not depicted in that artwork um 
is the sort of plasma phenomena that would kill you. So it's th- th- there's an interesting sort of correlation there. So um, they didn't make pictographs after they'd been killed. Shouldn't we talk about Adam since he's gone right now? For the minute, anybody want to give what you really? Oh feel my about? God, that guy, Adam that guy. Saying, he'll yeah. never, he'll never hear it. So you might <laughs> this, this elaborate it ruse, that we, but this conspiranormal ruse that we've yeah. been putting on. Well, know. I've got some initial impressions that I could share with everybody, but well, I'd like <laughs> okay. to do it in song. Ding dong, the witch is dead. Witch is dead. Wicked witch is dead. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, but uh, you know, I think that there's something to that. I mean, I, I think that it's 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 very telling that a lot of these uh, Neolithic structures that you find in the British Isles c- contain souterrains, which mm-hmm. um, which are uh, pa- either depending on their interpretation, either storage uh, areas or passageways between uh, certain uh, settlements where they could completely traverse underground. Um, you know, I don't know if that has any sort of direct correlation between uh, sort of larger cataclysmic events or not, but I think that it speaks to the fact that we had an affinity for being underground that we don't possess nowadays. Well, I've often thought, you know, having visited some of the caves in Europe, that, yeah, somebody spent a lot of time here, a lot of time on their hands, you know, and I'm thinking, now, were they killing time while seeking refuge from... Right, some type of event. So hey, let's can't go outside. So let's get our light brights out. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I, I want to say, but how much longer are we going to go? Are we? Mm. That's up to the missing Adam. I yes, think Adam that, that would said, be. A, I think Adam had said we'd be uh, finishing nowish. Hey, but by the way, uh, when Pompeii happened, mm-hmm. you have see a lot of sign that their society went in any kind of pre-designed caves or any kind of thing like that in attempting to get I don't know. I I just wanted to that. Cuz you know, I hate to go back to Revelation again, but that's, that's one of the fine key, with me. key right. things in that book was that when they see the cataclysm of the sixth seal open coming down onto the earth, mm-hmm. their immediate response was to get under the rocks to protect mm. themselves. Rocks, for, yeah. For what's coming down mm-hmm. onto the earth, and that's basically what you're looking you're mm-hmm. looking for shelter even the kings of the earth and all the other uh, in both the rich and poor. Agreed, because they knew what was coming onto the earth, and they were trying to. Mm-hmm, so that mm-hmm. was in ancient literature. You know, uh, you were talking about the, um, the these overall structures and the water and things like this. I'm very curious to see what's going to come out with these new discoveries under the Great Pyramid mm-hmm. that were just announced recently, and they haven't fully. I don't think they've disclosed it all yet, have they? About uh, not that I know of. About they found new passageways and some new things, even under not only new things that relate to like some throne around the king's mm. chamber, but also something underneath the pyramid. And I know that didn't the Nile used to go past those structures of the Great Pyramid before nature and there was a time diverted it? Interestingly, there was a time early in the Holocene, late Pleistocene, between eleven and 12,000 years ago when the Nile was undergoing super floods. Yeah. That brought it right up. I mean, there's salt. There's actually salt on the side of the flood. Mm-hmm. I mean, of, of the uh, pyramids. Uh, there's there's salt on it, so mm-hmm. there had to be water that got in there. So you would have had moving water, yeah, like the, you were talking about. The Sphinx where it was clearly to me, the Sphinx was submerged by flowing right. water. Right. You know, I I accepted that for years, and then when I spent spent the day there myself investigating it after I'd studied rock erosion for a decade, I came away convinced. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. there's no other explanation. Yeah. The, the Sphinx was submerged under flowing water. You show a picture of 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 that structure. Just a sort of a sample of that structure 
out of context to people who study weather yeah. erosion. Yeah, and yeah, they'll yeah. come to the same conclusion. Oh, yeah, yeah. And yes. I've done that. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I want to say anybody who's eventually is listening to this, two websites, Geocosmic Rex and Sacred Geometry International, where I've got a lot of this material. Geocosmic Rex, I've got what there's lots of really great video clips and images and drone footage of a lot of these landscapes. It's put up by my friend Brad Young, who has been my traveling buddy for about 20 years now. And we've been documenting this stuff and he's putting up some of this really, really rich stuff. Uh, that some, we've got some of the best drone. In fact, the drone footage that he's been taking of these on these trips now is of such a caliber that National Geographic bought our drone footage of the Camas Prairie um, ripple train and included that in their uh, last documentary that came out within the last year on on the great the mega floods. So if you see that National Geographic <coughs> documentary on the mega floods, there's drone footage that my, my friend Brad took when we were out there at the Camas Prairie. Have you got it there? Is that what you're pointing at? Oh, I thought you were pointing. No, Lucas, Lucas pointing at Stormy Stormy Blaze. What's her name? Oh. Stormy, Stormy Daniels. Stormy Daniels. <laughs> so anyway, Geocosmic Rex <laughs> is where I have a lot of the geological stuff. And then on the Sacred Geometry, I have a lot of stuff addressing like your questions and uh, the idea of the and I get I've got several articles up there on the Holy Grail and the symbolism of the Grail and how it may actually be uh, an indication of of a technology for replenishing the earth post catastrophe. Mm. I think that's a good place to leave it. Yeah. Josh, Just the moment my <laughs> wife calls. Hello. <laughs> oh, now the hour of power. That's right. Help. Right. Just, just when the phone started ringing, Adam said, well, I think it's time to, I think that's a good place to sl- oh, good place to a leave good place it. to stop. Tell <laughs> thank you for letting us borrow you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. You don't get home; it'll be your cataclysm. Yeah. <laughs> no. So, to what do I owe this call? Am I in trouble? <laughs> Josh, give your uh, give your saying, website. And oh such. yeah, yeah. We're done. I think we're about finished up. Yeah, we're about with finished the podcast, yeah. and now we're gonna eat pizza. And, <laughs> you should know, put her on speaker, Randall. So everybody can hear. Mm-hmm. Like I did the Luke earlier. <laughs> what? Yes, yes. We have Adam has reserved a real nice hotel room for us. <laughs> but he has to sleep with me, so I uh, sleep naked. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> sleep with this asshole. You spent four hours with already. <laughs> you just spent all, and all day and all tomorrow. night, most of the day tomorrow. tomorrow. We're, we're going to do a little sightseeing around uh, Nashville tomorrow, and then stop. What was the site? Um, Stone Fort. What is it Old on the way Stone back? Old Stone Fort. Old Stone so Fort. We're probably hit a site on the way that back. That and some Nashville hot chicken. We're good. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Where's is there hot chicken between here and? Okay. Yes. There? Thanks, Julie. Bye bye. Give me the hot chicken. I, okay, I just so happen to have a trophy for cooking hot chicken. <laughs> yeah. What the fuck, man? You show up late and you don't bring any goddamn magical fries. Rob, has, fry Rob king. has to mark it. Rob has to mark yeah, it. Yeah, why? No, you guys at the end of the show. Well, so I'm know, unleashing, man. You're, Luke, you're welcome for those violent stuff. I am knockoff. I am dumb with drinking. your shit, man, because like you show up late, dude, and like no fucking fries, no Chick fil A. You brought some fucking what's bacon. Beer, all right. Are we still recording? <laughs> oh, yes, very much so. Sorry, just, oh, okay, good. I just had to like, good, so, I just always giving it that. I told you, right, you just right, Josh Ramp. There's okay, only so. a massive stack of pizzas <clears throat> over there, and one, two, ready.
Okay, so my podcast, uh, uh, I don't have, my podcast that I regularly appear on is <laughs> where the road go dot com with Soraya's Kath and a bunch of people that I I am a, you know I try to hang with. Um, it's been quite humbling to hang out with you know Randall, uh, who is <laughs> like I feel like I'm the stupidest kid in the room or the world's tallest midget, one or the other. No, you're not. Um, but uh, <laughs> but um, it, it, and, and if you want to know any more about me, I'm joshuacutchin.com J-O-S-H-U-A-C-U-T-C-H-I-N like a cut on your chin dot com. An ill-maintained blog, but I try to keep everything updated uh, in terms of my interviews. So if you want to really like mainline and punish yourself with like 36 hours of me talking, um, you can find that there. Um, as well as updates about all my future projects. Yeah, Dr. Future? Uh, if you want to hear old stuff, still oldies but goodies, or seven years of archive shows, 300 shows, at futurequake.com. Future and quake, like earthquake.com. Hmm. Uh, they're all archived there, MP3s. Uh, there's something there to offend everybody. Uh, if you want to just see some occasional writings I do to show people that I'm still alive, while I'm finishing my book series, uh, you can go to twospiesreport.wordpress.com. That's T-W-O-S-P-I-E-S report.com or dot, uh, wordpress.com. And uh, my email address, drfuturefuturequake.com, is right on the front of the Future Quake website. And love to hear from you. And it's been great again to be on the 2000th show here again. 2000s, yes. I, I will add actually that, get there someday. Let me add that the Sacred Geometry International website is about to be upgraded and relaunched. Cameron Wilshire has been working on it for months now. And I just saw, had a glimpse of it a couple of days ago, and it's, I think it's going to be a really great improvement And because there's gotten to be so much material up there, it's gotten hard to navigate. So he's reorganized it all. And there's we've also got a um, the first first installment of an online sacred geometry course where I basically take people through the rudiments of geometric drawing and then take them into the depths of the sacred geometry system and how it works and how it applies to all kinds of things from from architecture to art to geology to astronomy to the measurement of space and the measurement of time. And that's the advanced stuff that we're working on. But what I've got up there now is like 14 lessons, I think, which is an introduction to the whole system. And I don't know of anything else that's like it. And anybody who subscribes to that, they get a, a, a custom-made custom made compass for drawing. Uh, that I designed myself because I couldn't find something suitable for uh, the exercises we use. But ba it's basically very much <clears throat> like you would have learned in a Plato the Platonic Academy or a Pythagorean mm. Lodge mm. in that it's the hands-on, you use the compass and the square, and you begin with the simplest geometric elements, and then it gets progressively more evolved. Um, and then as we explore these, you know, things like the, the root ratios and the golden section and the, the geometry of the Great Pyramid and all of this, then we go into all of the elaborate applications of the, of this information, both in the world of human, the human created world and in the natural world. So that's going up. So check it out. You might, uh, Randall, you've got hours and hours of material already yeah. on those websites. <clears throat> yeah, I do. I have a lot of material, and there's going to be a lot more material going up soon. Right. So, and well, I've got an upcoming, so I'll also put out there that, you know, I regularly, um, now that I've gotten through the recession, that 
financially held me back for a couple of years. I'm trying to get back to doing maybe three expeditions a year okay. to do continued Great. research. And um, I'm on the trail of some really hot stuff right now. And I could hopefully be collaborating with some of the gentlemen from the Comet Research Group um, as an outgrowth of this roundtable thing that I did um, with them earlier in the fall. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for being here. Thank for doing you for this. having us, this Adam. Was, this is really great. Very enlightening. I think we covered just about every subject in the book. <laughs> yeah, I need, a, I need a massage and like a salt bath. And just, <laughs> just drink some more of your hellfire water. Yeah, my, my, so my you'll be good. <laughs> All right. We'll close this section out. And uh, we're going to be back with a extra special reunion on Conspiracy Normal. <laughs> No cussing. All right. <laughs> it's already gotten started. You started it? We're doing like about a 10-minute segment here, guys, after the three-and-a-half-hour segment we just did. We drank the whole time. <laughs> you, you guys did drink the whole time. <laughs> yeah, we've been inside. But we got Jeff. Hey, babe. Renee. Hey. And, of course, Rob. I'm still here. The Leisure Hour reunion. This is, no. this is the part they will not be listening to. <laughs> <laughs> this is the comic relief section. Uh, they hate us. They hate us. So we missed the Leisure Hour. Is there any possibility that it's going to come back? No. I don't think that anyone misses the Leisure Hour at all. <laughs> I haven't seen Jeff or Rob. Since Renee is being a like real B word about the whole thing, <laughs> and it is upsetting. Um, it wasn't me; it was them. I I placed the blame on them. <laughs> it feels like one of those behind the music where one of us needs to storm out, and then yeah, it's Rob's constant uh, drug use. Um, <laughs> so you don't understand what Jeff was like backstage. You just you have you guys have no idea. He comes out and I'm he's all sorry. cheerful, but behind back, oh my god, before the he, show, nightmare. he is it's constant drug use, and it's all uh, rectal. Uh, you take everything from rectum drug wise. Never mind. Forget it. That was a bad joke. <laughs> doesn't take any, <laughs> doesn't take like anything by the, by the ear or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's yeah, pretty it's common actually. It's not drug use. It's not that weird. All right. Is suppositorial a, a word? Yes. It, yeah. Oh, sure. Okay. Suppositorial. Yeah. Forget it. I'm aborting so that. Is joke. that the same as professional, as, as professorial? Yeah. Man, it's been a long time since I've casted pod. I think, yeah. I think this explains Jeff. So earlier tonight, he was like, does someone have a LaCroix? <laughs> that's the end no but no he goes does someone have a LaCroix and I was like oh Jeff yeah I got I got some in my trunk uh, do you want some he goes what flavor no and I said no I did not nay <laughs> nay I did not say that what I said was uh, do you have any LaCroix and you go uh, yeah I think I got cranberry and I was like do you have a UTI what the hell is that 
gross. <laughs> Nobody that drinks that. That's not how I sound. Basically, I said, I have a free LaCroix for you that I will go into my car and get out of my trunk. <laughs> this is and how she sounds. he was like, you. This is how happened. she sounds. <laughs> this is the adults only section, sorry, guys. Sorry, I'm sorry. It's perfectly sorry. fine. Sorry, oh, yeah, we might just keep them. We should just show. keep them all in. Did you ask Jeff about the horses? <laughs> what? Yeah, what's your damage with horses, Jeff? Oh my god, I hate horses. Um, uh, what, what, <laughs> what about them? I'm not a big fan of horses. <laughs> well, they the are... topic of horses came up earlier tonight, and I asked Renee if she knew that you, uh, you, you didn't care for them so much. I don't. I have a fear of horses. I will let them coexist with me on this planet, but because I do not like horses. I'm not going to lie. That conversation the other night about horses was one of my favorites I've had in weeks. Well, I believe your exact words were, they're like giant mean dogs. I hate them. I hate their stupid tails, and I hate the way they poop. I do not like how they poop. I disagree with that. And um, I also, they, I've seen somebody get uh, like, oh yeah, this is the sweetest horse ever. And then it head butted him, you know, with that big <laughs> snout thing. And I don't like horses. And then I was, I was chatting with my girlfriend and yes, there is a human woman that will deal with me. And I was like, uh, babe, do you like horses? And she says, no, not especially. And I said, you are my soulmate. <laughs> I love you so much. <laughs> hey, do you guys have any cigars? Yeah, we do. We do. Oh my God. We had some cigars. I did promise Jeff cigars to get him here. <laughs> no, it wasn't. You make me sound like an asshole. <laughs> you are an asshole. Well, touche. I just wanted However, the I just wanted the opportunity to get for the our two hundredth episode to get you guys all three of you guys back together on a podcast. Well, it doesn't matter know, how long it, how long or short it was going to be. You know that we love you. Absolutely, and you were always you a big support of us, and um, your friendship is will always be cherished. Oh man, bro, moment. And um, I love you. Oh, I, I love Robertino. Just love you too, Jeff. But um, I like what you do. It's really Let's nice. Let's do some karaoke. I'm, yeah. I'm down. Yeah. Also, too, to say that Renee is going to be yeah, helping. Been... Renee is going to be helping us out on the show in a in the capacity of getting people booked. So. She's gonna start doing Big that for us. Mistake. <laughs> I'm, I'm very flattered. She ran so our show right into the ground. That's why it never took off. Yeah, it's because of Renee. All me. All right, guys, let's hit some karaoke. Uh, we'll right, be back. We'll be it. back later on, guys, to close out the 200th episode on Conspirator Ball.
It's a few days later. It is. The studio is still demolished. We had a hell of a party. Yeah, we did. And there's still like pizza um, crusts there is, on a there's, plate yeah, over there's, there. There's like a half a cookie that Randall was eating over there. There's pizza <laughs> crusts over there. There's bottles. I got a shit ton of Hellboy Hellwater whiskey. Uh, that's still here. I'm still drinking it. Yo, well, somebody's got to drink restore it. Restore homeostasis now. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> homeostasis. <laughs> Well, how did you guys feel about the uh, 200th episode? That was awesome. Such a random collection, but like a great collection at the same time. Those three guys together. You know, we had Joshua, Randall, and Dr. Future. Mm -hmm. You know, all all experts on various topics that we cover here, but nothing that we've ever like converged. And I, I, you know, I think it was great. It also was very cool that we had an we had somewhat of a studio audience. Yeah, but like with three or four people. Yeah, well, and others coming in and out and mingling and listening and. Yeah, I took plenty of pictures for the YouTube video. I'll have the pictures um, as a slideshow. Some of our favorite local fans and and supporters yep. were here and. Up, uh, uh, Surfiel, otherwise known as Will, he uh, asked a lot of good questions. He did so. In that point of of doing that whole thing with those three guys, which was a which was a freaking powerhouse, so it was just me pretty much being a moderator the entire time of that, and then we also got to speak to, as you just heard, speak to Jeff and Renee as well. <laughs> a little brief uh, leisure hour reunion between you three. Nappy roots, which is funny because they showed up and they they hung out with Alyssa and they got like. Good and hammered before they came out and even yeah, saw us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You hang out with Alyssa. That's what's going to happen. That's right. That's just yeah. what's going to happen. Luke. Yo. So how'd you feel about the 200th episode? I just came to drink and play with dogs. That's true. <laughs> and then afterwards, you and uh, you and Josh were like bonding over there. Yeah, he could keep his hands off me. <laughs> <laughs> I think he thought I was a chick or something. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, I'm kidding. I, he was. Awesome, I mean, yeah, man. he was. He was. Run, he was like running around naked down the street too. Like, I don't <laughs> yeah. know what. I don't know what was what going on with back? that. I mean, I don't think all the neighbors saw him. It was cool. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. good. That's yeah, good. He, he's a cool dude. I like him. Yeah, Duh. it was definitely fun to hang out with those guys in a, a, a non, yeah, non professional, so to speak, mm-hmm. setting. You know, mm-hmm. absolutely, absolutely. I was pretty happy about it. Um, well, just to say this, um, thank you guys for being here and getting us to episode 200. Thank you guys for starting this shit and getting me involved. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> thank you for doing you're it. You're welcome. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're you're a big part of what makes this happen. 
and Luke, you know, he's Luke. Yeah. So I, I just fill in space over here. Like, right. Well, you are the comedy relief, sir. <laughs> that's you, for sure. You, you provide the energy, man. You don't understand how much we feed off of that. Ugh. Yep. So here's to the next 100 and we're going to get to 300 and then who knows from there. Right. So thank you so much guys for listening to this mega opus 200th episode of Conspiranormal. Time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.